0: Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 173rd edition of the program. Today is Friday, December 21st, and before we get to the show... I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which decided to sign up just this last week to support us. And that includes Angie Hertz, David Krasny, Juniper Blackwood, Kareem Arwani, Kathy Lee, and Renee Garizar. So thanks so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support Or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So this is the very last episode of 2018, and as usual, it will be a jam packed show we'll talk about how cnn updated their 2020 democratic party presidential candidate power rankings and it's still completely baseless and nonsensical so we'll poke some fun at them and also chuck schumer tap dances around the question of medicare for all multiple times alexandria ocasio-cortez's green new deal is extremely popular according to a public opinion poll donald trump is auctioning off public land to fracking companies the bernie bro myth was demolished yet again by a different public opinion poll, Comcast got rejected by a small town that instead opted for public broadband and we will close the show with our annual thr awards where humanist report viewers will crown our scumbag of the year as well as our mvp of 2018 and we'll also decide the best and worst moments of the year and we'll also close with a compilation of news stories from the year and i'll give you some words of encouragement going into 2019 and i'm not even scratching the surface because those are just a handful of things we'll be talking about in this probably longer than three hour episode so stay tuned if you guys can make it all the way to the end and listen to this soy boy's voice for that long then you get some bonus points because i don't know that i could do that personally and it's my own voice we're talking about so regardless i hope you guys enjoy the episode uh let's go ahead and start the show Over the summer, CNN's Chris Saliza and Harry Enten decided to create what they believe is the definitive list of 2020 Democratic Party presidential contenders, and at the time, I kind of made fun of their list because they seemed to just pull names out of their asses and didn't explain the rationale as to why these individuals in particular are the supposed power players in 2020 well these two individuals decided to revisit their 2020 dem power rankings because a few months have passed you know the 2018 midterm elections have come and gone and things have changed quite a bit since the last time they created this list so It is just as comical as ever. So when you go to their power ranking list, at number 10 is Kirsten Gillibrand, number 9 is Julian Castro, number 8 is Sherrod Brown, and number 7 is Amy Klobuchar. Now, these individuals in particular, I mean, I don't really see why they would be appealing in a Democratic presidential field. I mean, Sherrod Brown, I could kind of see. But if you're going for that, you know, That individual who's going to be appealing to the Rust Belt, to the working class, then there's already someone with the name recognition and the popularity who would clearly, who should clearly be your guy, at least in theory, and that individual is Bernie Sanders. So, he's going to be at the top of this list, right? Well, (laughs) not necessarily, because Bernie Sanders only beat Sherrod Brown by a couple of spots. And he barely beat out amy klobuchar so this is where they ranked bernie sanders at number six and here's why they put him there instead of towards the top with joe biden where he should be if you're basing this off of polling number six
2: bernie sanders same ranking as we had look he got over 40 percent of the democratic primary vote in 2016. Uh, he has a a base within the party Uh, he has the infrastructure in place that being said a very old guy Um, And if you looked at we spoke about, I think it was last week among Iowa Democratic chairmen, they're a little suspect of nominating an older gentleman. And and maybe not so much the outsider anymore, which gets us to our top five right now, which is really interesting.
0: So the reason why, you know, Bernie Sanders just barely beat out someone like Sherrod Brown is because he's old. He's too old. The good old ageist argument to delegitimize someone who isn't just fighting for the working class. He's the most popular politician in the country now and has a substantial amount of name recognition. In fact, his name recognition grew exponentially since 2016, and he's demonstrated that he's a political powerhouse by getting Amazon to buckle, by securing enough votes in the Senate to cut off support to Saudi Arabia and his policies are polling very well. But because Bernie Sanders is old, well, that's reason enough to put him at number six on this list and not higher up. So, if age is such a strong factor, I get it, if that's your reasoning. However, there's another individual in this race who will likely be running who doesn't have all of those benefits that I just listed. His name is Joe Biden, but clearly, He's in the top 10, and he's not numbers 10 through 6, so he put him higher up than Bernie Sanders. So, you don't like old people because you think that, uh, you know, that's, that's going to be a turnoff to voters in spite of what the polling says, yet you put Joe Biden, again, without all of the benefits that Bernie has, further up on this list. Why? It makes no sense. I mean, if you're going to not follow polling, which is fine, you've got to thoroughly explain your rationale. And simply saying he's too old isn't very persuasive, given that, one, again, he's the most popular politician in America, and two, when he ran in 2016, he had more support among millennials than Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump combined. So clearly, voters see something else in Bernie that you're not seeing. They don't necessarily seem to care too much about his age. So the fact that you'd put him behind Joe Biden doesn't honestly make sense to me. Now, I want to address something that John Berman said, because he implied that Bernie Sanders is no longer anti-establishment. Now, I don't necessarily know if he was trying to imply that Bernie Sanders was somehow co-opted, but I think what he's trying to say is, well, Bernie Sanders has kind of been embraced by the establishment in a roundabout way. You know, Democrats appointed him and Elizabeth Warren to a leadership position, so he no longer will have that anti-establishment appeal that he once had. Except... You don't know what anti-establishment is or means. Bernie Sanders obviously is not in that group. He's not in the well-connected elite status, as is other politicians like Joe Biden or even Sherrod Brown. So I don't get why John Berman would suggest Bernie Sanders is no longer an anti-establishment candidate. It doesn't make sense to me. He just decided to say it in hopes maybe that it would stick and Bernie Sanders supporters would hear him and think, oh, yeah, I did like Bernie because he's anti-establishment. I guess that's right. He's not anti-establishment anymore. No, the only reason why you're saying that is because you don't like Bernie Sanders. He's still very much anti-establishment. And the way in which media outlets are scrambling to bury him and say that Beto has, you know, essentially replaced him is evidence that, yeah, the establishment is very much afraid of Bernie Sanders because he threatens the donors. He's going to get the party, the Democratic Party, to move away from their corporate donors, and they don't like that. It scares them. Hence, he's still anti-establishment very much. Now, who's number five on their list? Number five is Elizabeth Warren, and I don't really find anything that Harry says here too disputable. He talks about how the DNA test debacle kind of just blew up in her face and how, you know, maybe she doesn't necessarily have the appeal that she once had. But where this list gets really egregious is when they get into the top four with Cory Booker at number four. Number four,
2: Cory Booker. Uh, Cory Booker, I mean, if you've been following politics for a while, right, Cory Booker is someone, a name that you've known, the former mayor of Newark. Uh, his detractors perhaps would call him a Dreaded neoliberal, that's a word, you know, and they put it in quotes and it's big and scary. Uh, but he's actually had a pretty anti-Trump record. He gets his name out in the press pretty well. He's very personable. More than that, in the state of New Hampshire, Ray Buckley, who's the chairman up there, said, hey, there's no one who did more for our party in this midterm election than Cory Booker mm-hmm. did. in New Hampshire is, of course, a very important state.
0: So that to me just demonstrates clearly that these CNN elites in that D.C. bubble are so out of touch. Because he said, oh, well, you know, I'm putting Cory Booker at number four, even though his detractors would declare that he's a dreaded neoliberal. Right. We're trying to fearmonger about Cory Booker being a neoliberal as if elitist pricks like you, Harry, don't fearmonger about Bernie Sanders being a socialist as if people on your own network has it fear-mongered about socialism, as if we don't see that socialist boogeyman argument being invoked to discredit Bernie Sanders. But understand, the reason why a neoliberal like Cory Booker would be a disaster and the reason why we're rightfully sounding the alarm is because neoliberal market-based solutions to problems facilitated the rise of Donald Trump in the first place. The market has not worked out too well for Americans. In fact, the market has failed Americans in almost every conceivable way. Healthcare, education, water sanitation, food quality, the market is a failure. What you don't realize is that neoliberalism essentially facilitated the rise of a right-wing demagogue like Donald Trump, Who took advantage of americans desperation so to downplay the threat that neoliberalism poses to our lives is not just idiotic but it's also irresponsible now moving on to his top three we're just gonna let it play out and he's going to explain why joe biden beto o'rourke and kamala harris are at the top of his list
2: joe biden number three look he's led in all of these polls he's led in all of them but again, and he's also um, the vice, former vice president to the most popular politician in the Democratic Party, but another old white man, so we're a little... In leading the polls, has a lot to do with name recognition, which brings us, don't give it away yet, the top two, and this is where it gets really interesting. This is where it gets really interesting. Beto O'Rourke, who was at number 10, has come all the way up to number two. I think he's the biggest name, the biggest jump on our list. What's going on with Beto O'Rourke? Look, they had a MoveOn.org poll, straw poll, it's a you know, progressive... Um, people throughout this country. He came in number one. He actually beat Bernie Sanders, who got, I believe, 78 percent of the vote last time around that MoveOn.org poll when they endorsed him. More than that, he's shown an ability to raise money nearly 80 million dollars in his Texas Senate race. He's shown an ability to get young people very, very excited about politics. And you were mentioning to me off there. I think that's part of the reason why Julian Castro got in the race so early is because he is making people move, move, move. I think it's the main reason. I think Beto is driving the race. I think he's the one who forced Castro to jump in. I think he's the one who has the Bernie people most nervous saying things now about Beto work. He may be driving the narrative. Exactly. He is driving the narrative in the early going. It's still early, and that's part of the reason why he's not actually number one. Kamala Harris remains our number one. Look, she's in California. She has the big media market. She had, she could appeal to African-American voters. Uh, she has a very progressive record and she sort of checks off two boxes, African-Americans and women who were nominated in record numbers in 2020. But of course, with such a large field, I would still bet on her not being the nominee. But if there's one person
0: I was forced to choose, it would be her. All right. So Joe Biden is number three on that list. But, you know, he also has some problems. He's also pretty old. Now, the reason why I put him three spots ahead of Bernie Sanders instead of him also being old is because, I don't know. I just don't like Bernie personally. Just say it. Just come out and say it. We know that you don't like Bernie. And again, I'm not necessarily angered at the fact that you think Bernie Sanders doesn't have as good as a, as good of a chance as these other individuals, but it's just that your your rationale makes no sense. If being old is a detriment to your chances in 2020, why would someone like Bernie Sanders, who's the most popular politician in the country, with the highest approval rating among non-white voters and women, why would he not be higher on on your list than Joe Biden? It just seems suspect. I don't think Harry realizes that this list comes off as elitist and biased. Now, when it comes to Beto O'Rourke, Again, this is something that's really puzzling to me because this whole Beto-mania, beto twenty twenty phenomenon that we're seeing now is entirely fabricated by the media because to say that the individual who lost to Ted Cruz is poised to defeat the guy who beat Ted Cruz doesn't really make much sense to me. I get that Texas is different than you know the aggregate country, but still, I mean to talk about someone in such a glowing way who just lost is just problematic to me he also says he's shown an ability to get young people very very excited about politics okay well if you acknowledge that that's a plus again i've got a question why isn't bernie sanders higher up on your list again i sound like a broken record but i'm gonna say it again bernie got more votes among millennials than hillary clinton and donald trump combined so to put him Further down on this list, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. It just seems as if you're biased. And maybe it's the case that I'm being a little bit too unkind to you, but I'm just saying that you need to explain your rationale better because your, your reasoning for putting Bernie Sanders at number six, it, it honestly is flawed. It doesn't make sense. You're a political analyst. So you've got to give us more. Now, John Berman said that the Bernie people are nervous by Beto O'Rourke. Now, that kind of was him taking a jab at the Bernie people and supporters of Bernie Sanders, such as myself, but I'm not going to hide it. Fuck yeah, I'm nervous. Are you joking? Who isn't nervous? The last time we got a smooth-talking bullshitter in the White House who let everyone down, guess who followed that individual? Donald Trump. So I don't want to see what the next version of Donald Trump will be. I don't want to know what the Republican Party voting base will produce after eight more years of neoliberalism, because it's gonna be something a lot more scarier than Donald Trump, because each Republican Party president has gotten progressively worse. And again, if we continue down this same path of neoliberal, right winger, neoliberal, further right winger, neoliberal, extreme right winger, I mean I I don't I just don't wanna know. What will be produced by that? So, yeah, I'm very afraid of Beto O'Rourke, and you should be too. Stop trying to shove him down our throats. You did this with Hillary Clinton, and that blew up in your faces. If you try to do it again with Beto O'Rourke, if voters become cognizant of the fact that elites love Beto O'Rourke, that's going to be a turnoff. So, if you like Beto, just shut up and let the voters. Make their voices heard. Now, additionally, we get to Kamala Harris, who's number one, and basically, he puts her at number one because of the demographic advantages that she may have. She's a woman. Uh, she's a person of color. So, surely, that's got to be an advantage, but that's kind of a shallow way of looking at things because voters care about policy. Voters are self-interested, so they're not going to vote exclusively based on identity. I mean, all of us want to see a woman of color be president. I think that that would be phenomenal, but that's not going to take precedent over someone who has the better policies. Now, to be fair, Kamala Harris has adopted most of Bernie Sanders' policies, so she's at least demonstrating that she's more strategically astute than someone like Hillary Clinton. And in actuality, I do think that she's to the left of Hillary Clinton, but the problem is she only recently adopted these policy positions. So, while I think that that's a good thing, we don't necessarily know if she's just doing this for purposes of political expediency, if she's just posturing in order to win over progressives, knowing she has to in order to take the White House. And furthermore, someone who got Hillary Clinton's former donors excited, well, that just, that's a red flag for me. So, Again, to kind of um, recap this list here, everything he looks for in a candidate, the demographic advantage, I get that, but when you look at approval ratings, Bernie Sanders has the edge among women, among African Americans. This is according to a Harvard-Harris survey. He also has the most support among millennials, and while he may be old, to put him so far back on the list kind of contradicts your own reasoning as to why other people are higher up on the list. So, CNN's power rankings don't really make sense. And I love how John Berman and the other hosts were just sitting there nodding along as if what Harry had to say was just so insightful. It's not insightful. This is DC elites trying to rich explain to us who has the best chance of winning. Well, if you're just going to go by the simplest metric, just look at polling data. I mean, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are consistently at the top. And although these polls are too early to really give us too too much information at this point, what else do you have to go off of? So the rationale doesn't make sense. And I think that their 2020 rankings is even more comical now than it was last time. Ever since 2016, there's been this persistent myth about Bernie Sanders' support base, specifically that he only is able to cultivates support among straight white males. He doesn't appeal to women. He doesn't appeal to people of color. He doesn't appeal to sexual minorities. He only appeals to straight white males. Now, this myth, regardless of how disingenuous it is, regardless of poll after poll showing that Bernie Sanders has a higher approval rating among women and people of color, the myth just won't die. I thought we were able to put it to rest earlier when more than one poll confirmed that the Bernie bro myth is bullshit but it won't die. And it's because it's a really convenient way to smear and discredit Bernie Sanders. Now, let's talk about the origin of the Bernie bro myth, because it was manufactured in part by then Labor Secretary Tom Perez, who is currently the DNC chairman, because he didn't like, and a lot of Hillary Clinton officials didn't like the fact that Bernie Sanders was taking so much support among millennials. So, the way that Clinton campaign officials were able to reclaim that narrative was that, well, you know, Bernie Sanders may be getting a lot of support among millennials, but he's only getting support among white male millennials. Now, to be fair, it wasn't just Tom Perez, because the media also tried to propagate this myth. Even though this myth was incredibly disingenuous, Bernie Sanders did struggle with black voters back in 2016, but I speculated that that wasn't necessarily due to him not having a message that appeals to them. Rather, it was due to a lack of name recognition. And as time passed and more and more voters got to know who Bernie Sanders was and what he stood for, I was proven right because multiple polls, as I stated earlier, began to show that Bernie Sanders didn't just have support among white males, but most of his support actually came from women and people of color. But that didn't stop pundits from still spreading the Bernie bro myth. In fact, it's still being spread because as recently as December 13th, the New York Times' Jonathan Martin incorrectly stated that Bernie Sanders has struggled to expand his appeal beyond his base of primarily white supporters. It's infuriating to hear them still say this because Bernie Sanders actually is... He has the strongest approval ratings among women and people of color, but they're still saying this regardless because of how he performed in 2016 when nobody really knew who Bernie Sanders was because Hillary Clinton had all the name recognition in the world. Now, this particular article on that line specifically led to an explosive debate on a recent episode of TYT where Jen Uygren and John Iadarala defended Bernie Sanders from what they perceived was a smear, and I agree with them, but Michael Shore on that same panel claimed that a Approval rating wasn't a sufficient indicator to declare that Bernie Sanders had broadened his support base since 2016. But Jen Uger on that panel correctly pointed out that there hasn't been a vote since 2016, so you don't have any other indicator to use but approval rating. So if you want to know, How Bernie Sanders is faring among different demographics, you have no choice but to use approval rating. And it makes more sense to cite approval ratings than old data data, that sounded redundant, but data from 2016. So, the problem with Michael Shore's argument is that he's kind of lending cover to an establishment who has a vested interest in smearing Bernie Sanders because they don't really have another way of combating his popularity at this point. So, what they're trying to do is discredit him yet again. However, on the same day TYT published this video, another poll was released, this time by CNN and SSRS, that proved yet again that Jenkin and John were correct. And as Katie Halper points out in an article for Common Dreams about this specific poll, how come so many Bernie bros are women and people of color? Despite data to the contrary, the media continues to distort Sanders' politics and the diversity of his supporters. Now, I actually want to stop and take the time to read portions of Katie Halper's article because it really is... A great read, because as more and more data lends evidence to the opposite of what they're claiming, this Bernie bro myth is becoming more and more egregious because they are producing misinformation by trying to perpetuate this myth that Bernie Sanders' main support base is white males. Now, Katie Halper writes, a recent CNN poll shows that among potential Democratic candidates in Iowa caucuses, Senator Bernie Sanders has the highest approval rating from people of color, and the diversity of the Sanders-inspired left was on display at the sanders in. Institute gathering in Burlington, Vermont, earlier this month, which I covered on my podcast, The Katie Halper Show. But empirical evidence has not stopped much of the corporate press, including many liberal or progressive outlets and commentators, from condemning the senator as having a race problem. Over the past week, we saw Jonathan Martin of the New York Times, who happens to be white. Claimed that Sanders has done little to broaden his political circle and has struggled to expand his appeal beyond his base of primarily white supporters. Meanwhile, Clara Jeffrey, the editor in chief of Mother Jones, also white, recently presented not only Sanders supporters but the left movement in general as white, linking to a written exchange between two splinter journalists about Sanders, she tweeted, in which white lefties have a debate that somehow does not discuss the fact that Bernie has no real purchase among the POC base of the Democratic Party, and that problem has not improved for him. If anything, it seems larger. Sanders' critics smear him as blinded by straight white male privilege. The mere mention of class gets Sanders and others condemned as class reductionists. The irony is that many of the most vocal critics attacking him for being insufficiently intersectional fail to address class altogether as an aspect of identity. It's cruel, immoral, and politically disastrous to dismiss the experience of working-class people of all colors and backgrounds, but even those who openly mock the concerns of the white working class undermine their own alleged commitment to marginalized voices when they ignore the diversity of Sanders supporters. By ignoring the people of all ages, backgrounds, gender, sexuality, and ethnicity who support Sanders, they engage in the very erasure and marginalization of the women, people of color, LGBTQ people, and all the intersections thereof that they claim to oppose. And that is specifically why I wanted to share this article from Katie Halper because she nails exactly why this is problematic. The Bernie bro myth and people really perpetuating this Bernie bro myth are inherently hypocritical because they are erasing the voices of people who they claim they don't want to be erased. And understand that you need to stop disaggregating issues related to race and class because these are inextricably linked. And if we want to actually form a coalition that will be successful politically, it has to be a diverse coalition of women, people of color, men. It has to be everyone. So basically the takeaway is that Bernie Sanders, he has a message that is broadly appealing. And as a result, and it's not surprising that his message is broadly appealing, but as a result, well, the people who support him are very diverse. It includes women people of color, sexual minorities. People support Bernie Sanders because he has policies that will help their lives. At the end of the day, shame on anyone who perpetuates this Bernie bro myth because it's just not validated by empirical reality. So they're spreading misinformation by parroting this point about Bernie Sanders only having support among straight white males and not being able to broaden his support base, because the opposite is true. Clearly, he's broadened his support base, and for you to not acknowledge that, it's clear that you're either uninformed or disingenuous. With the 2020 campaign season upon us, we're starting to see more and more criticisms of Bernie Sanders surface, and some of these criticisms are resurfacing. They're the same things that was said about Bernie Sanders in 2016, um, and Mehdi Hassan of The Intercept decided to write an article wherein he responds to each of these main criticisms. Now, there are five in total. The first is that he's currently behind in the polls. This is a new one. Also, he's too white, he's too old, he isn't a Democrat, and he's a socialist. So, the question is, how do we respond to each of these criticisms in a way that's effective? Well, this is what Mehdi says— when it comes to Bernie Sanders being behind in the polls, Medi explains that it is currently the case that Joe Biden has been leading in early polls, with Bernie coming in a distant second and Beto coming in a close third, but Medi makes the point that are the polls really relevant at this stage? The election is 23 months away, and none of the main runners and riders have formally announced that they're even running yet. For comparison, Guess who came top in a CNN survey of potential Republican presidential candidates in December 2014, 23 months before the 2016 election? It was Jeb Bush at 24% with a double-digit lead over his nearest rival, Chris Christie. Ted Cruz, who would end up coming in second in the 2016 GOP primaries, was 8th place with 4%. Donald Trump's name didn't even make the list. Now, I actually would agree with him here for the most part because... At this point in time, when nobody's campaigned, when we haven't seen a debate, when nobody's really had the opportunity to make their case or talk so America can gauge whether or not we like them or not, I just think it's too early. I think that there is some value in the polls to see where we're at, but at the same time, it's really early and you shouldn't put too much stock into polls just yet because we could see Joe Biden have the same effect that Hillary Clinton had since he will be viewed Probably as an establishment figure. I mean, he is establishment, but I don't know that he's going to be perceived that that way among the American people. But what happened to Hillary could happen to him in that the more he talks, the more his poll numbers go down. We don't know yet. I think that Joe Biden is probably a little bit more politically astute than Hillary Clinton. So odds are They won't go down too much, but at the same time, polling is just its too early at this point to put too much stock in it, but if you're desperate and you're a member of the establishment and you hate Bernie Sanders, then you're going to grasp onto anything that might potentially give you hope that he's going to lose. Now, when it comes to the next criticism, people say... We can't elect Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders is too white. In fact, Amy Siskin, a journalist, said that she's not voting for a white male in the Democratic Party primary. And it's not just that people are averse to having a white male be president. It's that the establishment is trying to perpetuate this myth that Bernie Sanders just doesn't do too well among black voters. Now, Mehdi explains that this narrative that is accepted by the mainstream media that Sanders didn't perform well among blacks is actually an oversimplification because, in actuality, he only really failed to capture support among older black voters and he didn't actually struggle that much among younger black voters. Furthermore, he makes the point that there are dozens of prominent black supporters and surrogates of Bernie Sanders that allow with him and furthermore he's since broadened his support among people of color since 2016 and he's done this by building alliances within the black community and aligning with high profile black candidates such as andrew Gillum. and additionally what he's doing seems to be working seeing that various polls now show that bernie sanders actually has the highest approval rating among black voters so at this point they're basically just trying to rehash the bernie bro myth that is no longer backed up by the data. Now, when it comes to Bernie Sanders being too old, I actually really liked the way that Mehdi responded to this argument here because, for some reason, there was this idea that progressives didn't want Nancy Pelosi to be the speaker because we were ageist and not against her corporatism. Now, nobody really said that. I don't care how old someone is, so long as they're going to do a good job and promote progressive policies. But the idea was that progressives are against Nancy Pelosi because, well, she's too old. Now, Medi's going to take that argument, flip it, and use it against the establishment. He says, come election day, November 2020, Sanders will be 79 years old, which would make him the oldest person to ever run for the White House. Yet, his likely Republican opponent, Trump, will be the previous record holder. He was 70 in 2016 and will be 74 in 2020. Yes, the overweight, sitting president who eats junk food, doesn't exercise, and refuses to release his medical records. In terms of the Democratic primary, primaries, Sanders will be 79 in 2020, but Biden will be 77 and Elizabeth Warren will be 71. Oh, and did you know that Speaker designate Nancy Pelosi and her top deputy Steny Hoyer are both older than the Vermont senator? So why should his age be held against him? I think that that is a perfect response and one thing I'd add is that Bernie Sanders is seemingly in perfect health. There's been no indication that he's in poor health. He is traveling the country. The guy has more energy than me. So I'm confident that Bernie Sanders will be fine and furthermore even if Bernie Sanders was in poor health if that were the case hypothetically speaking well then if he picked a VP that would carry on his legacy then that would kind of ameliorate that fear so um I think that that's a perfect response now also there's the argument that we all know and love from um among the progressive left Bernie's not a democrat now to that this is how many responds so what <laughs> pretty much. He may be an independent, but he caucuses with Senate Democrats and is their chair of outreach. He won 13 million votes in the 2016 Democratic primaries. Despite refusing to join the Democrats in the wake of the 2016 election, the party's base still adores him. As of October 2018, he had a whopping 78% approval rating with Democratic voters. That's a phenomenal point. I'd also add, though, to Mehdi's argument here that him not being a Democrat actually gives him a benefit because. If you look at public opinion polls, a lot of people aren't satisfied with the two-party duopoly. More people identify as independents than they do with either of the two parties. So Bernie Sanders being an independent is actually going to help him out quite a bit. Now, certainly if he runs within the Democratic Party Um, primary and he accepts their nomination, then he'll no longer be a Democrat. But the fact remains that he's been an independent throughout his career, and that's going to give him an advantage. It's not going to be a hindrance. So, I don't even know why people in mainstream media and within the establishment and DC bubble think that that's persuasive to normal Americans, but it's not. To them, it's persuasive because they're Democratic Party loyalists and they just can't fathom that someone wouldn't be loyal to their party. But that's just tribalism. What Bernie Sanders represents is individual people, so who cares what party he's a part of? Now, finally, we get to the last argument and That argument is that, but Bernie's a socialist, we can't nominate a socialist because that would be disastrous. Now, what Mehdi says about this is that, while that's probably not going to hurt Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party primary, it could conceivably hurt him at least a little bit in the general election when going up against Donald Trump and the Republican Party tries to throw the entire kitchen sink at Bernie Sanders. But Mehdi has a response to that that I think is actually very persuasive, it's that, For the last eight years when Obama was president, what did Republicans call him? They called him a socialist. When Obama was everything but a socialist, he was a neoliberal who almost exclusively proposed market-based solutions to political problems. And I think that voters will be able to realize that since Republicans overused that word so much, they've essentially stripped it of all meaning and that word doesn't really have any meaning anymore, at least among the Republican base, because Nobody even knows what that means since Republicans basically just use it to demonize any and everyone that they don't like. Now, I agree with Mehdi for the most part, but I do believe he's overstating the threat that, you know, that socialist scare will um, have in the general election because you have to think about it this way. We are living at a time where Americans are incredibly polarized. You have people on the left and center, and then you have people on the far right. Anyone who's a conservative in the modern Republican Party and identifies with them. They're on the far right. So we're polarized. So there's very few people in the middle of those two groups who is going to, for some reason, be turned off by that socialist label and flip and go to the far right. I think that that, I mean, it's conceivable. Sure, it could happen, but... Those types of voters don't really exist and they won't exist in 2020. I'd be surprised if they did. You're either to the left or you are far right. And I don't really think that that socialist label is going to be enough to turn you off so that way you vote for a fascist like Donald Trump. Furthermore, Bernie Sanders has the ability, like Obama, to excite the base, which is often a determining factor in the Democratic Party's success. In fact, it's always a determining factor in elections. And on top of that, polls from 2016 show that Bernie Sanders would have defeated Donald Trump handily. And while we don't know how he'd fare against Trump now, well, it does tell us that while they may not like socialism even if they may be against the idea of socialism the abstract idea of socialism well they'd still be willing to opt for bernie over donald trump based on older polls and furthermore when you put a face to a certain set of political ideas it kind of makes it less scary and furthermore we have to remember that most voters They identify, they self-identify as conservative, but operationally speaking, they're liberal. So just because somebody feels as if they are symbolically conservative doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be uh, conservative in practice and i think the same is true here just because somebody says they wouldn't vote for a socialist if a majority of people say they wouldn't vote for a socialist doesn't mean in practice that they wouldn't vote for a socialist if they know who that socialist is and what he or she stands for and furthermore bernie sanders is the most popular politician in america so while americans in general might be inherently averse to the idea of socialism I think that attaching a face to it, i theorize at least, would dissipate any fears that they have. And furthermore, Bernie Sanders isn't even a real socialist. He's a social democrat. He calls himself a democratic socialist, but in actuality, he's a social democrat. A social democrat is basically a capitalist who wants to make capitalism a little bit more softer around the edges. So... I think that that would be relatively easy for us to combat. And when he talks about socialism, he talks about policies like Social Security, Medicare for all, which are policies that are overwhelmingly popular. So I don't actually think it's going to be that big of a problem. And I kind of disagree with Medi here because I think he's overstating the threat that that socialist label um, poses to Bernie Sanders. But with that being said, after looking at all of these main criticisms, I think these are the five main criticisms, at least now, in December of 2018, I mean, if this is the best that the establishment can come up with, then I think we should all feel relatively confident going into 2019. I mean, don't feel comfortable, because you never want to get too comfortable. We've still got to work hard, but for the most part... If this is the best that they got that they can throw at Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that Mehdi Hassan wrote this article, because I do think that we need to start thinking about ways we're going to respond to all of these criticisms, because they will inevitably be used against Bernie Sanders, and if we craft responses now, I think we'll be better off if we all kind of say the same thing, because these are persuasive counter-arguments to use against the most uh, prominent criticisms of Bernie. So, yeah, um... These aren't very persuasive, in my opinion, so I think that we can easily rebut these, but we still gotta work hard, and that goes without saying. It seems as if everyone in the Democratic Party establishment and in media all have a case of Beto fever, because it's pretty evident that they've been doing everything they possibly can to push Beto O'Rourke, and according to ABC News, Betomania has become so huge that it casts a shadow over the entire 2020 field and the week recently declared that beto is the new bernie and along with this declaration came a picture that is surely going to haunt all of us in our dreams for years to come. Now, the reason why I think we're seeing this sudden push by Democratic Party loyalists is because they see that Bernie Sanders is carrying over the momentum that he had from 2016 and progressives are still very excited about Bernie. So, they're hoping that they can maybe peel off enough defectors from the Bernie camp and get them to support Beto O'Rourke because They don't want Bernie Sanders to win. He poses a threat to the status quo and they want someone who they believe can pass as a progressive who will, in fact, play patty cake with the establishment and be a little bit more centrist. But the problem with Beto O'Rourke is that the more we learn about him, the less we like him. And the biggest problem with Beto as they try to shove him down the throats of progressives and try to convince us that he's progressive is that he's not progressive. And if you think that I'm just a biased Bernie bro, you don't even have to take my word for it because Beto O'Rourke himself doesn't know if he's progressive because when asked whether or not he's progressive, he said, quote, I don't know. And he said he's not a fan of labels. Now, if that wasn't enough, as Kyle Kalinske points out here, Beto O'Rourke isn't even in the congressional progressive caucus, which is really the bare minimum because that caucus at large isn't even that progressive, but it's the bare minimum for anyone who wants to pass as progressive. But Beto isn't in that caucus. Rather, he's actually in the moderate pro-Wall Street New Democrat coalition. And when you look at his House voting record, he's actually the 86th most progressive, which makes him even more conservative than Nancy Pelosi. And if that still wasn't enough for you, the group Oil Change USA removed his name from the list of candidates who promised to reject fossil fuel donations because a sludge investigation discovered that Beto actually violated that pledge and took multiple contributions from oil and gas industry executives. Now, if you're still not convinced by all of this, then I feel you because really what matters is the voting record and I kind of alluded to certain things that makes it seem as if he's more conservative. I mean, being the 86th most progressive, that's not something that you really want to brag about, but how problematic are his votes? According to a new investigative report by David Sirota, well, he explains that Beto's record is a lot more problematic than any of us imagined. He explains, Capital and Maine reviewed the 167 votes O'Rourke has cast in opposition to the majority of his own party in the House, During his six-year tenure in Congress, many of those votes were not progressive dissents alongside other far-left-leaning lawmakers, but were instead votes to help pass Republican-sponsored legislation. In many cases, Democratic lawmakers said that those measures were designed to help corporate interests dismantle Obama administration programs and regulations. Amid persistently high economic inequality and a climate change crisis, O'Rourke has voted for GOP bills that his fellow Democratic lawmakers said reinforced Republican tax agenda chipped away at the Affordable Care Act, weakened Wall Street regulations, boosted the fossil fuel industry and bolstered Trump's immigration policy. Consumer, environmental, public health and civil rights organizations have cast legislation backed by O'Rourke as aiding big banks, undermining the fight against climate change and supporting Trump's anti-immigrant program. During the previous administration, President Obama's White House issued statements slamming two GOP bills backed by the 46-year-old Democratic legislator O'Rourke's votes for Republican tax, trade, healthcare, criminal justice, and immigration-related legislation not only defied his national party, but also at times put him at odds Even with a majority of Texas Democratic lawmakers in Congress, such votes underscore his membership in the New Democrat Coalition, the faction of House Democrats most closely aligned with business interests. And really, that's just a broad overview of how problematic his House voting record is. But I think to really get a clear picture as to how problematic Beto is, you've got to dive in a little bit deeper and look at specific examples. So in 2013, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau asserted its authority to stop discriminatory lending practices from the auto industry, where African Americans and Hispanics were charged more for auto loans than white customers. Now, in response to this, the GOP introduced legislation to repeal the new rule from the CFPB, claiming they didn't like it because it lacked, quote, openness, whatever that means, and numerous civil rights groups, including the NAACP and even Obama's administration, condemned the GOP's bill because, I mean, why? shouldn't the CFPB be able to stop discriminatory lending practices? That's what they're there for. They're there to protect consumers. So, the GOP essentially chose to declare that they were pro discrimination. And as loathsome as the GOP was for trying to stop the CFPB from curtailing discriminatory lending practices, can you guess who joined the GOP here? Beto O'Rourke. And he didn't just join the GOP. He co-sponsored the bill that they introduced to stop the CFPB from curtailing discriminatory lending practices. Beto O'Rourke literally co-sponsored a pro-discrimination bill and he used the GOP talking point to um justify his decision. He said they lacked openness. This new regulatory measure by the CFPB lacked openness. That means nothing. They're trying to stop discrimination. Are you for or against discrimination? Now, David Sirota explains that Beto O'Rourke ultimately voted against a CRA resolution that would have killed this new CFPB regulation, but he was still instrumental in setting the stage for its ultimate demise because the GOP repealed it once Trump was elected. But he also supported Republican-backed efforts to curtail the CFPB's regulatory oversight in other ways. He voted with Republicans twice to lift 40-year oil export bans. He also voted for six different bills that sought to deregulate Walsh street he voted to weaken the volcker rule in 2014 and again in 2018 which sought to stop banks from using money of depositors for speculative trading he voted to fast track the trans-pacific partnership and even though he voted against the gop's tax bill he joined house republicans in voting for more tax cuts for the rich so needless to say beto o'rourke is not the new bernie Now, he does do some good things, to be fair to him. I I actually respect the fact that he's not taking corporate PAC money, but he's still getting financial contributions from oil and gas executives that exceed $200. Now, I don't know if that has a corrupting influence on him, but it's certainly problematic to say the least that he is voting to end oil export bans and basically do things that deregulate Wall Street. This is all very problematic. So... Beto O'Rourke is not the new Bernie Sanders. And I think that what America wants right now is not another pro-corporate centrist Democrat. We want a progressive. So if you're trying to convince us that Beto is the one that's the new Bernie Sanders, yeah, you're going to have to try harder than that because what he's done thus far is very unlike anything Bernie Sanders would ever even dream of doing. This is completely problematic and Quite frankly, it's grotesque. The DNC recently released its preliminary 2020 debate schedule, and I think it's kind of a mixed bag. There are some good aspects about it, but there's also some things that I do find problematic, but certainly... It's definitely better than 2016. Um, I don't think that that's even questionable at this point, but let's go ahead and get to the details and then I'll tell you my opinion on it. So, as Michael Schurer of the Washington Post reports, Democratic presidential candidates will meet in June for the first of at least 12 planned primary debates of the 2020 election cycle under a plan released Thursday by party officials who said they were determined to create large debate audiences with broad candidate participation. Ticket entry to the early debate stages will be determined by a combination of polling, grassroots financial support, and other factors in an effort to include candidates who are not registering nationally in public opinion surveys. If the number of candidates is too large to host at a single event, the party plans to host two events in the same location on consecutive nights. After randomly dividing the candidates in a public selection process, that would increase the number of actual debates beyond a dozen. Drawing lots should strikes me as the fairest way to make sure everyone gets a fair shake, Democratic National Committee Chairman Thomas Perez said on Thursday. We want our candidates to be able to articulate their vision of America. We don't want debates to be discussions of what your hand size is. We want debates to be discussions of health care. As it did in the last presidential election, the Democratic Party will threaten to punish candidates who participate in debates outside of the official schedule. But candidates are welcome to attend forums or town halls with their competitors as long as they appear in sequence and do not directly engage with each other before voters. So, the first negative about this is that they're not fully releasing the details in which, you know, a candidate will or won't qualify, so they talk about grassroots fundraising and poll numbers and whatnot, so, I mean, I would like to know more about that. Certainly, I think it is more fair to base participation and eligibility, rather, on more than just poll numbers, but at the same time, I do want to hear about what those qualifications need to be before making my decision. Now, the biggest negative about this is the return of the DNC exclusivity clause, where any candidate who participates in a non-DNC-sanctioned debate will be banned from participation in future DNC-sanctioned debates. Now, we know that the reason why W Wasserman Schultz instituted this rule back in 2016 And limited debates was so that way when people inevitably got angered at the fact that they weren't having enough debates, well, um, she could block them from going elsewhere since the DNC was only sanctioning a couple of debates. So I don't know why this exclusivity clause is returning. It really makes no sense to me. And to me, it wouldn't be an issue if there were enough debates. Now, as for the number of 12 debates, we have six in 2019 and six more in 2020, with June and July having the first two debates. There's a break in August, and then it returns on basically a monthly basis. But is 12 debates, or potentially more, if we break them off, enough? At this point, judging by how many candidates will enter, no, that is not enough. I was hoping for at least a minimum of 20, um, excluding extra debates that we have to house additional candidates. Now, what I do like is that they're not necessarily having kids' table debates for extra candidates like they did on the GOP side, because there was always those embarrassing kids' table debates for the candidates that polled the lowest, and I think that that was kind of a way to um, maybe inadvertently discredit those candidates, and I don't think that something like that should happen. I do think that all voices need to be considered, because even the more fringe voices who— probably won't get much traction like Andrew Wang. I think that they deserve a chance to appear on a debate stage because they'll still influence the discussion around the more prominent candidates. Like, I want him to talk about um, universal basic income. I want Richard Ojeda to talk about anti-corruption measures because I want that to influence the other candidates. So I kind of like that they're making them basically draw lots in order to determine who will be on the first night and the second night. But 12 debates... That's really not a lot. And again, keep in mind that it will be more than 12 debates. They'll basically be 24 if, you know, it follows that there's like 20 candidates and they do two debates, you know, on each scheduled event. But I would like to see more um i think that you've really got to get the word out there and there's no reason to limit it to only 12. Um, now again it may very well be the case that they don't limit it to only 12. they may do more this is only the preliminary debate schedule but you know i just i was hoping for more so i mean this really is a mixed bag The return of the exclusivity clause is really pointless. I mean, if you agree that we should have more debates, then there's no reason for you to penalize other candidates. They are allowing them to appear on town halls and whatnot, but if they talk to each other at that event, then they're violating the DNC exclusivity clause. Just get rid of it. I mean, even howard dean of all people thinks that the dnc exclusivity clause was a stupid idea back in 2016 and i would hope that he'd be principled and condemn it here now but at the same time i will say that the dnc exclusivity clause is a lot less problematic now since they are holding more debates because again that rule presumably was instituted to help shield Hillary Clinton and hide Bernie Sanders away from the public. So, look, it's a step in the right direction. It is a mixed bag. There are things that I find problematic, and at this point, we need more details, but credit where it's due. This isn't as bad as I had initially expected it would be. So, it's clear that Tom Perez is at least doing the bare minimum to try to cultivate support among progressives, but Drop the DNC exclusivity clause rule and let's do at least 20 debates, even if that means we have 40 debates in total and we have two debates per each planned debate because there's so many candidates. I think that the more that we get out the word, the better it will be and the better our chances will be, you know, going up against Donald Trump in 2020. So there you have it. I'll let you guys make your own choice. Since becoming president, Donald Trump hasn't just done irreparable damage to the United States. He's done harm to the entire world because since he's been elected, he pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, he's gutted regulations that ensure clean air and clean drinking water, he illegally and unconstitutionally bombed Syria multiple times, he started a trade war with China, he dismantled the Affordable Care Act, leading to millions of people losing health insurance in America, and additionally, he cut his own Taxes as if he couldn't be any more brazen. The first major policy victory that he won was him cutting his own taxes. So, Donald Trump has been a disaster, and I think that saying that is an understatement because by just listing off that short list of policies, I'm barely even scratching the surface because he's done a lot more. But in spite of all of the horrible things that he's done, well, he wants you. To give him a call and thank him and he's so adamant about wanting to be thanked and wanting that affirmation that he literally spent money creating producing and running an ad where he encourages his followers to call him and thank him and i'm not even kidding about this this is brad parscoe
3: campaign manager for president trump President Trump has achieved more during his time in office than any president in history. And that is why I need every Trump supporter to pick up the phone right now and deliver a personal thank you to your president. We have a booming economy, historical unemployment, including the lowest unemployment rate for minorities in history. We are bringing jobs back to America through new trade deals and the world is a safer place. We need to let President Trump know that we appreciate what he's doing for America. I need you to call the number on your screen and deliver a thank you to President Trump. Call or go online now. Call
4: 800-684-3043 now and press 1 to tell President Trump, thank you. Thank you, President Trump. Thank you, President Trump. Thank you, President Trump. President Trump needs to hear from his supporters by calling 800-684-3043 or visit DonaldJTrump.com slash TV to thank President Donald Trump. I'm Donald Trump and I approve this message.
5: Amazing.
0: So, that was really weird. (laughs) Um, Just some advice, Trump and Trump's team. If you're going to fish for compliments, do it in a more subtle way, rather than explicitly saying, call me and thank me, and saying, the president needs to hear from his supporters. Maybe just have them call you and tell them which policy you codified into law that they support the most i don't know but you're literally just asking them to call and thank you is there anything more pointless than that i mean if you want your supporters to be mobilized and do anything why wouldn't you have them call a member of congress and urge him or her to support policy x y and z i mean this is so pointless this is literally just so donald trump feels better they read an ad so d- Donald Trump can hear from his sycophantic supporters and tell him how good of a job he's doing because he needs to hear that. This is embarrassing. So, of course, since I saw this and he put out a number, I'm going to have to call to thank Donald Trump because I feel as if I have a lot to say um to the president. So his number, again, is one eight hundred six eight four. 684 3043. I don't even know what I'm going to say.
3: Thank you for calling to show your support for President Trump and thank him for his efforts to make America great again. After the tone, state your name and leave a brief thank you message for President Trump. Again, state your name and say thank you after the tone. Press the pound key when finished.
0: Hello, President Trump. My name is Bill Butlicker, and I just wanted to thank you so much for pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement because I actually want the world to end, so I see this as a good thing and destroying the habit... Ha- you. Before Fuck.
3: We add your support, please hold for a very important message from Brad Parscale, campaign manager, Donald J. Trump for president. Hello, this is Brad Parscale. Thank you for supporting President Trump. I talk with the president every day. And I need to let him know who is with us. President Trump is keeping his promises to the American people. Our economy. No, he's not.
0: Lower regulation. Okay. So that's probably just going to be a fundraising message. But now that I know that it's like five seconds, um, I'm going to make it just short and sweet. So I'm going to call again.
3: you for calling to show your support for President Trump and thank him for his efforts to make America great again. After the tone, state your name and leave a brief thank you message for President Trump. Again, state your name and say thank you after the tone. Press the
6: pound key when finished.
0: Give us Medicare for All and end the wars like you said you would before you were elected, you liar.
3: Thank you. Before we add your support, Please hold for a very important message from Brad Parscale, campaign manager.
0: Donald oh, Trump so Hello, I don't think that he sent the first message because you have to listen to their fundraising thing. So um, I'm just going to let this play out so I can send that message because I think he needs to hear that. ...massive tax cuts and renegotiated trade deals that put America first. Finally, the working class. Forgotten Americans are winning. We are enforcing our immigration laws and making Americans safer because America is stronger around the world. Yes, by locking Trump babies in, in cages, president you're president making Trump us safer. Media ...and far-left Democrats who want to implement the radical socialist
3: agenda. They will stop at nothing to overturn the election and remove your president from office.
0: Overturn point, the election? You, me,
3: and millions of deplorables elected President Trump to... He,
0: he just said fake news, American condemned America. fake news, and then said we want to overturn the election. Who's saying that?
3: We are fighting to make sure President Trump is re-elected in 2020, but we cannot do it alone. We need help from Trump supporters like you. I need you to please press 1 now to make a contribution directly to President Trump's re-election campaign. Again, please press 1 to
7: support President Trump's fight to make America great again. Press 2 to continue.
0: Okay.
3: I understand a contribution is a lot to ask for. President Trump is asking for your support now.
0: You're rich! Just fund it yourself. Go to your rich corporate donors. Your direct support
3: to his campaign is critical in this effort. You can even make a modest contribution. Please press 1 now. Press 2 to continue.
8: Fuck you, no.
3: Thank you. Please go to DonaldJTrump.com to see how you can further help support President Trump. Thank you.
0: Goodbye. Okay, understand that this is kind of a bait and switch because in the ad, they said if you want to leave them a message and say thank you, press 1. But when you call that number, they say press 1 to make the contribution. So this is a bait and switch. They're saying, oh, call to thank us or thank Donald Trump specifically, but we're just going to bug you to fundraise. And when you say no, we're going to ask you again. So, I mean, this is a typical fundraising call. It's not really that surprising to me, but... um. I'm a little disappointed, honestly, because I thought I would be able to leave long messages like I typically do to lawmakers, but hopefully he got my message about Medicare for All. Um, They're probably not going to be too happy, but oh well. So this is probably the most pointless segment in the history of the show, but I saw an opportunity where I can call and leave Donald Trump a message, and I have so much to say, so I just thought I'd give it, you know, a shot. Um, I would encourage you to not call and do what I just did because uh, we are almost nine minutes into this segment and it's been a complete waste of time. So (laughs) do, do better than I'm doing now. And maybe call your lawmaker and tell them to support a Green New Deal or Medicare for all, because I really thought that I could get like some type of political message across. But that was just fundraising bullshit and nonsense. It's still embarrassing that they'd put out that ad. I mean, we all made fun for Hillary Clinton's narcissism back in 2016 when she would put out ads saying uh tell hillary clinton you're with her sign the petition i mean this is worse than that because you're literally asking your supporters to call and thank you now i get it you're not really looking for thank you you're looking for dollar bills but how about this trump rather than relying on all of your supporters who you've already exploited why don't you go to wall street Go to the Koch brothers and Sheldon Adelson and all of your rich billionaire donors because you're not representing your supporters. You're representing the rich and oligarchs. So get money from them. Stop trying to fundraise off of your supporters. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you were able to dupe them out of more money, but you shouldn't because you're a scumbag and you're not representing them. So um, yeah, we'll leave that there. Karen Yorish and Larry Buchanan of the New York Times recently released an article that includes a lot of really insightful and useful infographics that demonstrate how Donald Trump is still making a lot of money as president from his businesses. Now, I've talked about this before, but if you want to make the case for impeachment, I personally think that the Emoluments Clause is the easiest case to be made for Donald Trump's impeachment because... The day he was sworn in, he was in violation of the emoluments clause because he refused to place his businesses in a blind trust. And as a result, there's this looming conflict of interest that hasn't gone away and i'd argue that it's actually gotten worse and look there's a number of crimes donald trump has committed not just as president but throughout his career because if you think about this he got his fortune due to a tax evasion scheme cooked up by him and his family by hiding his father's wealth He also committed fraud and was sued for fraud. And this is an individual who is a career criminal. Now, Yorish and Buchanan explain the Constitution prohibits the president from accepting payments from foreign and domestic governments. President Trump owns hotels and other properties that are frequented by foreign and domestic government officials. These facts claim plaintiffs in two lawsuits that have cleared several hurdles. Add up to repeated and multiple violations of the Constitution by the president. Didn't Trump say he was distancing himself from his businesses? Yes, days before the inauguration, Mr. Trump resigned his role and turned over management of the Trump organization to his two eldest sons and a longtime company executive through a trust. Past presidents have used a blind trust in which an independent trustee reported to them on the value of the trust, but not what was in it. But Mr. Trump's trust is controlled by his family and a close associate, and he receives updates about his business. He remains its sole beneficiary. Now, why is this problematic? Why is a blind trust preferable? Because we don't know if his sons are acting as proxies on his behalf he could be directing them to do certain actions, which again poses a conflict of interest. And that is incredibly troublesome because if you're the president of the United States, we need to know that you're acting on our behalf and not acting and creating policies in a way that will help you make more money personally. So, if he placed his businesses in a blind trust then we would be less worried about this conflict of interest. But since he gave control of his businesses and the Trump Organization to his sons, well, they're probably just a proxy for him and they're still acting on his behalf. And the main problem is that he can revoke control of those businesses back at any time he wants to. So it's not really the case that he relinquished control. And here's what that looks like. So Trump still owns his properties through the Donald J. Trump Revocable Trust, which is controlled by Trump Jr. and Alan Weiselberg, whose sole beneficiary is none other than Donald J. Trump. Now, the question is, knowing that you're going to be the president and this may be an issue for you, why wouldn't you just do the right thing and place your businesses in a blind trust when it's clear that the Constitution doesn't allow you to do this i mean if if you don't place your businesses in a blind trust you are violating the emoluments clause so why deal with all the headache? Why deal with the controversy? Why not just place your businesses in a blind trust? Well, it's because Donald Trump thinks that the Constitution doesn't apply to him because the authors continue. After he was elected, ethics experts from both parties urged Mr. Trump to put all of his assets with the potential for conflicts of interest into a blind trust. Mr. Trump and his lawyers have cited several reasons why they did not, including that, quote, Conflicts of interest laws simply do not apply to the president. In other words, he thinks that him being president gives him the authority to usurp the Constitution. But the Constitution is very clear. I mean, there are areas of the Constitution that are left up for interpretation that are intentionally vague, but I think that Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8 specifically is very clear about this. Quote, No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept of any president, emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever from any king, prince, or foreign state. Now, the reason why Trump and his cronies probably thought that they could get away with this is because the issue of emoluments has never actually been litigated before. There's no legal definition of what constitutes a violation of the emoluments uh, clause here. Now, what's interesting is that there are two lawsuits against Donald Trump that have actually advanced, so Donald Trump may very well be the guinea pig in this situation. And the authors here put together graphics that illustrate the numerous and repeated violations of the emoluments clause by Donald Trump because of his businesses. So, when it comes to the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., well, he still owns and profits from this property, and it's clear him being president is bringing revenue to this property because officials from Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, the Prime Minister of Malaysia, Georgia's ambassador to the U.N., and the governor of Maine have all stood there, perhaps, to curry favor with the president. And when it comes to Trump World Tower in New York, Saudi Arabia literally owns a floor in this building and pays him thousands of dollars every single year to which he still personally profits from. And when it comes to Trump Tower in New York, the Chinese government owns a bank That's a tenant in this particular building. And in addition to these buildings, he still has real estate projects around the world. Now, again, the reason why this is a problem is because if you are acting as a representative of the United States, as president of the U.S., We need to be assured that you're acting on our behalf and not on behalf of your businesses. We need to know that you're not taking a trip to China for purposes of you securing licenses of some sort. We need to make sure that you're doing it for purposes of diplomacy. We need to make sure that when you invite individuals from around the world here, you're doing it so that way you can conduct affairs on our behalf and not doing it so that way they'll spend thousands of dollars at the Trump World Tower. But because we can't be guaranteed that you're acting on our behalf and not on behalf of yourself and your businesses, well, that's the very reason why there's the emoluments clause in the Constitution. It's to stop things like this, it's to stop questions like this. So there are two lawsuits that went forward that may be the path towards uh, impeachment for Donald Trump. We don't know how this is going to play out. Again, this hasn't been litigated before, and there's really no legal definition up until this point, as far as I know, that explains what a violation of the emoluments clause looks like. But certainly, you know, um, when you look at pending litigation, judges find the arguments of plaintiffs pretty convincing to advance them in two different instances so donald trump may be in trouble and even if he's not in trouble if he can somehow escape prosecution which is very possible um there are other things donald trump has done That could get him in legal trouble. I mean, David Pakman just released a video recently where he kind of listed off all the different things Donald Trump has done wherein he violated the law and may still be in violation of the law. And it's just astounding when you kind of just step back and look at all of the things Donald Trump has done. I don't know how you can come to any other conclusion, but Donald Trump is a criminal. Not just a criminal now, he's a career criminal. He has constantly behaved as a criminal and broken the law and committed fraud And it's really pretty uh, frightening that someone like this is in the White House. Now, the only problem is that if he does get impeached because of all of said crimes, then we get someone in the White House like Mike Pence, who could do possibly even more damage than Donald Trump. So um, regardless of how this turns out, it is important to know that what Donald Trump is doing here is unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. Now, from a legal standpoint, we haven't determined if that's unconstitutional, but from a common sense standpoint, I'd argue that it's very evident that he's in violation of the Emoluments Clause, and that is an impeachable offense. And he may get away with it, as I stated, but it's at least important that we know that he's violating the Constitution. At a time when Americans are rightfully hypersensitive when it comes to issues related to the environment because of reports we keep seeing from the IPCC and the United States government telling us how urgent the threat of climate change is, you'd think that Donald Trump would be a little bit more cognizant of the fact that if he's going to deregulate the industries that pollute and emit greenhouse gas emissions, if he's going to do the bidding of the fossil fuel industry. Maybe he should just wait a little bit because now is not the best time given that we're all very focused on any and everything that could lead us down the path of catastrophic climate change. But he's still doing everything he can to just allow fossil fuel companies to ruin the planet. And there's another story. I just told you a couple of weeks ago about how he is basically gutting the Clean Water Act, and now he's auctioning off federal land so that way fracking companies can make money off of... What we own. So, in an op-ed for EcoWatch, the Center for Biological Diversity writes on Tuesday, the Trump administration offered more than 150,000 acres of public lands for fossil fuel extraction near some of Utah's most iconic landscapes, including Arches and Canyonlands National Parks. Dozens of Utahns gathered at the state capitol to protest the lease sale, which included lands within 10 miles of internationally known protected areas, in addition to Arches. And Canyonlands, the Bureau of Land Management leased public lands for fracking near Bears Ears, Canyons of the Ancients, and Hovenweep National Monuments and Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. Utahns have demonstrated their commitment to transition away from dirty fossil fuels, through clean energy resolutions passed in municipalities across our state. Yet, these commitments continue to be undermined by rampant oil and gas lease sales, which threaten our public health, public lands, and economy. While Utah's recreational and tourism economies continue to flourish, these attempts to develop sacred cultural, environmental, and recreational spaces for dirty fossil fuels remain a grave and growing threat, said Ashley Soltysak, director of the Utah Sierra Club. Utah is our home, and the reckless sale of our public lands with limited public engagement is simply unacceptable and short-sighted. Fracking in these areas threatens sensitive plants and animals, including the black-footed ferret. Colorado pink and minnow, razorback sucker, and Graham's beard tongue. It also will worsen air pollution problems in the Uinta Basin and use tremendous amounts of groundwater. Utah just experienced its driest year in recorded history. This is a reckless fire sale of spectacular public lands for dirty drilling and fracking, said Ryan Beam, a public lands campaigner at the Center for Biological Diversity. These red rock wonderlands are some of the West's most iconic landscapes and we can't afford to lose a single acre. Fracking here will waste precious water, foul the air, and destroy beautiful wild places that should be held in trust for generations to come. This lease sale is part of a larger agenda by Trump and Interior Secretary Ryan Zink to ramp up fossil fuel extraction on public lands, threatening wildlife, public health, and the climate. This year, the BLM has offered more than 420,000 acres of public land in Utah for oil and gas extraction. The agency plans to auction another 215,000 acres in March. The Trump administration also has issued new policies which are being challenged in court to shorten public comment periods and avoid substantive environmental reviews. So there's a plethora of reasons why Donald Trump should not be auctioning off public land in Utah to fracking companies. It will pollute the air. They have to use groundwater, which there's water scarcity currently. It threatens wildlife. And furthermore, it's going to harm the planet as a whole. So, I mean, there's so many reasons as to why He shouldn't do this but donald trump doesn't care because he's a shill he basically just gave them a blank check and allowed them to do whatever no matter the environmental cost no matter how much degradation their extraction of fossil fuels will cause he's allowing them to do it anyway so at a time when we should be banning fracking and moving towards a ban on fracking nationwide he is opening up more of our public lands this is Not acceptable because we own these public lands, but yet he's saying, you know what? You can just take it and frack on it. It doesn't matter that people in Utah don't want you to do this. Not only are we going to let you do this anyway, but we're going to try to shorten the public comment period so we don't actually have a substantive and thorough discussion when it comes to the environmental impact of your actions here. Go ahead, just have at it. I mean, this person is despicable. Donald Trump is an old man, so he's not going to see the worst of what climate change has to offer, but his children will, but he doesn't care because money is more important than life on the planet to Donald Trump. So this isn't a surprising story by no means. I mean, it's it's really unsurprising, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's any less important because what he's doing here is morally reprehensible and It really shows how shameless and brazen he is because, again, at a time when we're all glued to our television screens and computer screens looking for information related to climate change because we keep getting devastating report after devastating report he's still doing it anyway. I mean, we learned this year that there will be a runaway global warming effect that we may not be able to do anything about. Even if we take action now, we may still see a runaway global warming effect. We have the IPCC telling us we've got to act within 12 years and take substantial action in order to avert a climate catastrophe. And his own agency, his own government, with 13 different agencies, released a report saying if we don't take action, not only will climate change kill the U.S. economy, but it's going to kill Thousands of people every single year, and he doesn't care. In fact, he denies that report. This guy is an absolute menace to the world, to the environment, to our country. And if we don't get him out in 2020, then I worry about what the world will look like in just 10 years because we're already seeing the effects of climate change. I mean, think of the consequences. We're seeing record breaking weather patterns, we're seeing an increased frequency of hurricanes. We're seeing unprecedented wildfires, and not only does he deny the fact that this is all related to climate change, he's still just outright denying the existence of climate change, because he's too stupid to know the difference between weather and climate, because if it's cold, I guess that means that global warming doesn't exist, and it was a hoax. Well, it's very real, it's not a hoax, and what you're doing is you're accelerating the destruction of the environment. Shame on Donald Trump, but saying shame on Donald Trump means nothing, because he has absolutely no shame. He doesn't care. He couldn't care less. So, um, yeah, this is what we're going to have to deal with, so long as he's president. President Donald Trump proved that even a broken clock can be correct twice a day because he unexpectedly tweeted out an announcement about the war in Syria and said, We will be bringing all of the troops home to everyone's surprise. And this is what he had to say.
4: I've been president for almost two years and we've really stepped it up and we have won against ISIS. We've beaten them and we've beaten them badly. We've taken back the land and now it's time for our troops to come back home.
0: Now, love him or hate him, you've got to give credit where it's due. I think that this is a good move and I applaud him for having the instinct to do what's right and what, and what Americans want him to do now what's interesting to me is that we really didn't catch wind of this it just kind of happened abruptly and i'm sure that he was planning it but his plans didn't leak out to the press and it's clear now why he tried to keep this under wraps it's because once he made this announcement he pissed off a lot of people and when i say he pissed off a lot of people i mean he pissed off his own party technically both parties, and as The Hill's Rebecca Keel reports, Senate Republicans uncharacteristically lashed out at President Trump on Wednesday for announcing a sudden and immediate withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria, a decision that came without consulting Congress and seemed to catch the Pentagon off guard. Several lawmakers said Congress received no advance notice of Trump's announcement, leaving them fuming and scratching their heads. I don't know what they've done, but this is chaos, Senator Lindsey Graham, a staunch Trump ally and Armed Services Committee member, told reporters, adding that he planned to discuss the matter with Defense Secretary James Mattis. In other words, what Lindsey Graham, one of the biggest warmongers in all of the United States government, is going to try to do is convince James Mattis that this is something that Trump shouldn't do because Lindsey Graham's donors in the defense industry wouldn't like this because not being in Syria means less profits for Boeing and Raytheon. So, this is... Not a very surprising reaction that we're seeing here, but what really struck me in this article was that the problem that members of Congress have is that he didn't consult them before announcing his decision to bring the troops home. But when this war started, the president did not consult with Congress in the first place. Congress is the Is the body in government that is supposed to make war. They have to declare war, and they haven't done that. They haven't authorized this war. So the fact that it's gone on this long to begin with is a huge issue. But they're mad that he didn't consult them to end war. I mean, everything in this country is backwards currently. And mainstream media quickly joined the chorus of outrage and on CNN, Jake Tapper brought on another warmonger to let him explain why this is a horrible decision and you should definitely be in favor of war.
3: Congressman, you had a rather direct response to the president's tweet asserting that uh, or, or ISIS had been defeated in Syria, you said, quote, this is simply not true.
9: Yes, absolutely not true. I mean, I, I'm speechless today, Jake. I just, uh, I've I've tried to process this, what led to this. And in fact, during that intro, I was looking down. I, I've worn this since March. It's uh, a buddy of mine that was killed in Iraq. Andreas O'Keefe, he was killed this year uh, fighting ISIS. And to see the president wake up today and say, we've defeated him, when we know that's not true. I mean, nobody would argue that we've defeated him. That's not only going to hamper our current operations. It's going to double or triple the ranks of ISIS because when we leave, they're going to say, look, we just defeated the United States without many casualties. And look, fighting terrorism is not a choice we have. It's just a question of where. Do we fight them there or do we fight them here? This makes no sense to me. I cannot put anything into words about why this makes any sense. It's emboldening Iran. It's emboldening Bashar al-Assad. But it's definitely emboldening ISIS, our sworn enemy. I, I don't get it.
3: Ambassador John Bolton, uh, the national security advisor, said just a few weeks ago, I think, that the U.S. was not going to leave until yeah. Iran left uh, the region. And is it your understanding that Iran has 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 left uh, Syria?
9: No, and not just John Bolton. Every national security member of the president's team has said we're not going to leave. We have a base in Al-Tamf that straddles a very important supply route uh, where Iran wants to have access to Israel and to Israel's enemies. So this is implications beyond just the fight against ISIS. This has to do with Israel, Jordan, everywhere in between, not to mention all our allies that are involved in this fight that also woke up today and goes, oh, okay, so I guess we have to pull all the troops out too because the United States is. Too bad we never heard that until a tweet was just submitted.
3: Do you Explain how, because there are probably a lot of people out there who don't understand it or don't agree with you, but who don't understand why you're arguing this makes the United States
0: less safe why great idea Jake Tapper just let him go ahead and spew propaganda pro-war propaganda don't challenge him at all just let him talk about how the war is wonderful and anyone who's against it is wrong I'm wondering Jake why aren't you asking him how he's gonna pay for this war it seems like you care about the cost of policies when it comes to Medicare for all but you don't care now that he wants us to stay in Syria presumably forever and I love how he was acting as if he was speechless and just so appalled by Donald Trump's decision to bring the troops home. Look, why don't you spare us the righteous indignation because you're a bullshitter and you're a warmonger. Look at all the things he said. I mean, if you want to make... A persuasive argument as to why we should stay in Syria maybe make it a little bit more reasonable because you just sound like an alarmist warmonger. Oh, it's emboldening Iran, but it's also emboldening Assad, who hates Iran. ISIS is going to double. They're going to triple. Look, if you want us to be in Syria so bad, why don't you go fucking fight? Pick up a gun and go to Syria and fight yourself. And as he asserts that ISIS hasn't been defeated, even though there's conflicting reports about the Syrian army declaring ISIS defeated, the point is that it doesn't matter whether or not ISIS has been defeated or not. If you want to go to war with Syria, then you need to get Congress's approval. But what this individual is saying is, Trump should be able to wage war without the authority of Congress. And rather than bemoaning this decision here, which is actually something good that donald trump is doing for once why don't you just advocate for war the constitutional way and bring up a vote on it introduce legislation that would authorize war in syria and do it the correct and constitutional way but you don't want to do that because this is what he said quote fighting terrorism is not a choice we have it's just a matter of where so if we need to invade a hundred different countries to quote fight terrorism Which means whatever we say it means then uh we're gonna do that it doesn't matter that the war on terror has been a complete and utter failure because we've actually created more terrorists with our actions but we have to fight terror we don't have a choice and this kind of just goes to show you that What happened in America is that what was once normal has flipped. Never-ending war is the new norm. And when that norm is violated, you see how individuals within the establishment react. They lose their mind. They don't know how to react to it because... It's so absurd to them to think, oh, we're actually not going to occupy this country that didn't attack us, that doesn't pose a threat to us. And I've just got to go back to Jake Tapper there, who at the end said, explain how this makes the United States less safe. In other words be very afraid be very afraid of terrorists who are definitely going to kill you before a lack of health insurance does see the whole question the way it was framed this is called leading the witness you're asking a leading question because you are priming him to answer in a way that's suitable for your narrative jake tapper this is why people hate the mainstream media it's because you fucking suck You are there to promote a narrative that is corporate-friendly, and you couldn't possibly buck the establishment narrative because, well, you're there to serve the establishment. Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent explains this. Now, this is my fear, and I want to talk about this because this is a real possibility, I think. Judging by the reaction that Donald Trump received after he made this announcement— I would not be surprised if he buckled on this, if he buckled to pressure from the establishment because before, he's had the right instinct, but he caved to pressure. I mean, when he was first elected, before he was sworn in, he talked about how essentially we're going to do some form of a single-payer system where everyone's covered, but the government pays for it. And then when he actually started having discussions about healthcare, it was only a matter of moments before Paul Ryan flipped him like that he was asking, why can't we just expand Medicare to cover everyone? And by the end of that one meeting, Paul Ryan and other Republicans convinced him that repealing the ACA was the best route to go. So, I don't think Donald Trump will hold strong, and if he does, I'll be pleasantly surprised and I'm more than willing to give him credit here, but... It's just that he's so spineless and cowardly that I wouldn't be surprised if he caved. So I'm not going to necessarily give him credit yet. I will give him credit for having the correct instinct. And I think that this is really a good thing to announce because, of course, we should bring the troops home. What are we doing in Syria? What are we doing? ISIS has been diminished. Certainly, you can't make the case that they pose as great Of a threat as they did when we first went there so i mean let the syrian army fight them let iran or whoever the fuck wants to fight them fight them and let's come home or if you want to stay there get authorization from congress that's another way to do it which i wouldn't be supportive of but at least you're going about this in a constitutional matter and not allowing just one person to unilaterally wage war so the senate has kind of been surprising me a little bit lately both for good reasons and very bad reasons. But first, let's get to the good. They recently adopted Bernie Sanders' resolution to end U.S. support for Saudi genocide in Yemen. They also unanimously passed an anti-lynching bill. And they recently passed bipartisan criminal justice reform. Now, I know what you're thinking. Bipartisan? That's got to be bad, right? Because even if bipartisan isn't inherently bad— well, it doesn't really mean the same thing it used to mean. I mean, before bipartisan legislation was an example of the children's health insurance program, but now whenever there's bipartisan reform of any sort, I usually just have this visceral aversion to it because it usually means that we're getting screwed over by both parties. But when it comes to criminal justice reform here it's actually a solid step in the right direction now, as German Lopez reports, the Senate on Tuesday passed a criminal justice reform bill in an eighty seven to twelve vote overwhelmingly approving the biggest changes to the federal criminal justice system in decades. The bill, known as the First Step Act, will take modest steps to alter the federal criminal justice system and ease very punitive prison sentences at the federal level. It would affect only the federal system, which, with about 181,000 imprisoned people, holds a small but significant fraction of the US jail and prison population of 2.1 million. Essentially, the bill will allow thousands of people to earn an earlier release from prison and could cut many more prison sentences in the future. Now, all Democrats supported this, but there were some Republicans who opposed it. But for the most part, they were defeated and the individuals who were cheerleading this bill, which surprisingly was Chuck Grassley and uh, Cory Booker, I believe they were actually the two sponsors of this bill, they got it through and it's... um. It's a really solid step in the right direction. It doesn't go as far as it needs to, to say the least. But it's still a good first step. And this will be a positive force in the United States, who has the highest incarceration rate per capita in the world. Now, what specifically does this bill offer so the major provisions are as follows the bill will make retroactive the reforms enacted by the fair sentencing act of 2010 which reduced the disparity between crack cocaine and powder cocaine sentences at the federal level this could affect nearly 2,600 federal inmates according to the marshall project the bill would take several steps to ease mandatory minimum sentences under federal law it would expand the safety valve that judges can use to avoid handing down mandatory minimum sentences. It would ease a three-strikes rule so people with three or more convictions, including for drug offenses, automatically get 25 years instead of life, among other changes. It would restrict the current practice of stacking gun charges against drug offenders to add possibly decades to prison sentences. All of these changes would lead to shorter prison sentences in the future. The bill would increase good-time credits that inmates can earn. Inmates who avoid a disciplinary record can currently get credits of up to 47 days per year incarcerated. The bill increases the cap to 54, allowing well-behaved inmates to cut their prison sentences by an additional week for each year they're incarcerated. The change applies retroactively, which could allow some prisoners, as many as 4,000 according to supporters, to qualify for release the day that the bill goes into effect. The bill would allow inmates to get earned time credits by participating in more vocational and rehabilitative programs. Those credits would allow them to be released early to halfway houses or home confinement. Not only could this mitigate prison overcrowding, but the hope is that the education programs will reduce the likelihood that an inmate will commit another crime once released and as a result reduce both crime and incarceration in the long term. There's research showing that education programs reduce recidivism. So these all seem like fairly solid, albeit incrementalist steps in the right direction. I like that they're trying to both reduce prison Time. And also, they're trying to tackle the recidivism rate. So, I mean, it's better than nothing, right? This isn't sweeping reform, but it's still very positive. Now, what should be added to the bill? Well, Bernie Sanders points out, I'm glad that the first step act passed, but there is much more needed to achieve comprehensive criminal justice reform. We must end cash bail and private prisons and mandatory minimums, reinstate the federal parole system. Our primary goal must be rehabilitation, not punishment. And that's just it. I think that if you really change the way that we approach criminal justice in the United States, the impact could be profound. We need to focus on rehabilitation and not punishment. So, this is absolutely a positive step in the right direction and it's one of the reasons why the Senate has kind of been surprising me lately, although with good also comes bad because this is America and our politicians don't represent us. So, since Donald Trump announced a withdrawal of troops from Syria, there has been a lot of outrage from senators who are trying to stop him from doing that. This includes Lindsey Graham, among some Democrats as well. But additionally, something that's really nefarious that they're doing, specifically that Democrat Ben Cardin and Republican Rob Portman are doing, is they're desperately trying to sneak their anti-BDS legislation into a spending bill at the very last minute. And while it's not as draconian as its worst iteration, which actually called for jailing people who participate in BDS, which is just laughable, I mean it's still unconstitutional nonetheless it imposes criminal and civil penalties for bds activists and it may very well be the case that by the time you see this video this either passed or was defeated but thankfully there's a little bit of pressure from leftists on these lawmakers because this absolutely cannot go through we live in a country where the first amendment says that the government is not allowed to penalize individuals that express freedom of speech. And this couldn't be a more brazen violation of the First Amendment. In fact, if this passes, this would be a quintessential example of a violation of the First Amendment. And I have got to give a shout out to David Dole, who made a really phenomenal video about how lots of states are actually imposing these laws where... They're making, I believe, uh, state-level workers sign contracts agreeing that they won't participate in BDS. I'll link to it down below so you can get the full scoop because I don't want to butcher this story because it's really important. But one teacher was fired because she refused to sign an anti-BDS contract and the individuals who claim to care about BDS or no, they don't claim to care about BDS. They claim to care about free speech rather like Ben Shapiro and Dave Rubin. They've been silent about this. So, This is something that we absolutely have got to defeat, and as Emma Viglin pointed out on Twitter, any Democrat who supports this has got to be primaried, because this is absolutely unacceptable. So, with some good comes some bad, we got fairly solid criminal justice reform, we got the Senate voting to approve bernie sanders bill that would withdraw u.s support for saudi's genocide in yemen but at the same time they're trying to push this anti-bds legislation on us and sneak it in to a spending bill because they know that that's the only way they can get it passed so i mean it's a mixed bag but for the most part at least we're getting some good things i guess as opposed to just all negative all the time Senator Elizabeth Warren recently introduced a bill that targets the high prices of prescription drugs in America. And looking over it, this is legislation that's absolutely fantastic, and I just don't think that it's getting the attention it deserves because in the event this were ever to be codified into law, it would really be beneficial to the American people. And I think something like this is long overdue. So for more details about this, we go to David Dayan of the Intercept who reports Warren introduced legislation on Tuesday with Representative Jan Schakowsky that would create an Office of Drug Manufacturing within the Department of Health and Human Services. That office would have the authority to manufacture generic versions of any drug for which the U.S. government has licensed a patent whenever there is little or no competition critical shortages, or exorbitant prices that restrict patient access. About 90% of all prescription drugs filled are for generic medications, but recent events have revealed that the generic market is also broken. A 2017 National Bureau of Economics Research paper found that generic competition has weakened over time as fewer firms compete to make alternatives. By 2016, 40% of all generics were made by a single manufacturer. Warren's bill, The Affordable Drug Manufacturing Act attempts to address that market failure by having the government pick up the slack. The Office of Drug Manufacturing would acquire rights to manufacture generic drugs or contract them to be manufactured by an outside entity. The legislation explicitly states that those generic drugs must be offered at a fair price that covers manufacturing and administrative costs while ensuring patient access. The office could strip a contractor of its ability to make and sell the drug if the price point is too high. Proceeds for these sales would go back to covering agency costs, making it a self-sustaining entity. The government would also be authorized to manufacture active ingredients for medications. This has become a problem as major drug companies routinely deny rivals samples of their products, which are used in testing to determine whether the generic is an equivalent treatment." One drug is listed specifically. Generic insulin treatments would have to be produced within the first year of the legislation's passage. Prices for insulin have skyrocketed in recent years, and shortages are common. In market after market, competition is dying as a handful of giant companies spend millions to rig the rules, Warren said in a statement. The solution here is not to replace markets, but to fix them." Now, I wouldn't necessarily argue that markets are the solution here, but nonetheless, what she's doing is really important because this would help seniors in America, individuals who struggle to afford the cost of their prescription drugs. Now, if you'll recall, not too long ago, Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna teamed up again to introduce legislation that also attacks this very issue. It attacks the prices of prescription drugs. Now, what their bill does is allows the government to grant licenses to companies to produce alternatives to drugs that they deem excessively priced. Now, even though Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren may soon be rivals in the upcoming Democratic Party pres presidential primary, the bills here that they're both introducing are actually complementary. They wouldn't conflict with each other. They're both complementary, and together they would ultimately produce more options than just passing them separately. So it's a great way to take on Big Pharma, albeit in two different ways. So they're kind of tackling this from two different angles, which is really great. And in a roundabout way, when I read this, it sounds like Elizabeth Warren is kind of introducing a public option ver- version of you know prescription drugs that allows us to tackle it in this way. So this is something that is long overdue and I'm actually surprised that it hasn't been introduced previously. Now, I shouldn't say I'm surprised because we all know that Big Pharma has a stronghold on our government. They lobby, they submit campaign contributions to politicians, so that's why this issue hasn't been addressed. But nonetheless, this as a solution It's just good public policy. So I'm surprised nobody thought about this sooner. I'm surprised that this hasn't come to my attention. So credit where it's due. Elizabeth Warren is doing something here that would actually save lives. And that's why it's really important. And I like that she set up her bill so that way it wouldn't conflict with Sanders. So it's not this either or. These are both two bills that are absolutely fantastic. The Bernie and Connor bill, and the Elizabeth Warren bill. So by pushing for this, it shows that Elizabeth Warren really is one of the best senators in America because think about this, it's not that often that anyone in Congress does anything that benefits average Americans, but Elizabeth Warren, regardless of how bold her policies may be, they're at least always looking out for the American people and this is one of those instances where she's showing that she is a fighter. So Uh, credit where it's due. Elizabeth Warren, you know, she's disappointed me in the past that we don't have to rehash all of that, but this right here is absolutely phenomenal. And I think it's, I'd go as far as to say that this is a heroic move by her because this is what would save lives. So the Bernie bill, the Elizabeth Warren bill, along with Medicare for All would once and for all solve this healthcare crisis in America. And I'm glad that we're finally starting to elevate these issues, elevate the issue specifically of the high cost of prescription drugs in America, because this is something that affects a lot of Americans. The fact that lawmakers haven't really been talking about it seriously until just a couple of years ago is baffling. And again, it's because they're corrupt, but nonetheless, you know, it's something that has got to be addressed so this is long overdue and it's a phenomenal piece of legislation and i really hope that it gains a little bit more attraction because i'm disappointed that more people aren't talking about this i'm disappointed that we didn't really hear a peep about this in the mainstream media but this is this is great this is legislation that actually would help americans in a really substantial way and i absolutely hope that it gets passed Chuck Schumer appeared on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd, and he was asked about Medicare for All. And before I even play the clip for you, I'm pretty sure you can anticipate exactly how it's going to go. Mr. Schumer, Um, what do you think about Medicare for All? Some Democrats believe in Medicare for All. What do you think about that? Well, let me tell you, Chuck, what we're going to do is we're going to fight for universal access to care, to make sure that healthcare is better than ever, to make sure that we protect the ACA. And if you thought that it would go that way, that's exactly how it went. Because he was asked about Medicare for All pretty clearly, and he rejected the opportunity, not once, not twice, but three times, to declare his support for the most popular healthcare policy in America. So, here it is. It's going to pan out exactly as you would have expected. This is what Adam Green,
10: founder of Progressive uh, Change Campaign Committee, writes. He says, Democrats need to put a bright north star in the sky for 2020 voters, showing what Democrats would do with more power and making clear that we're moving toward Medicare for all as a big part of a 2020 electoral strategy. It seems pretty clear that the presidential nominee, whoever it is, will support Medicare for all. Do you think it's time for Democrats to push this?
11: Look, Democrats are for universal access to health care, from one end of the party to the other. We want more people covered, everyone covered. We want better health care at a lower cost. People have different views as to how to get there. Many are for Medicare for all. Some are for Medicare buy-in. Some are Medicare over 55. Some are Medicaid buy-in. Some are public option. We're going to have to do a lot more on health care. It will be a major issue in 2020. And I believe Democrats will coalesce around the best way to get the best health care for the most people.
10: Uh, Where where are you? Do you think you should spend more time fixing the Affordable Care Act or launching a new health care proposal?
11: Well, we first have to undo this awful decision because, look, we have a Republican president, we have a Republican Senate. They've spent a lot of time sabotaging health care, so that's the first job. But after that, Democrats, as we did in 2018 rather successfully, are going to make health care a major, probably the major issue in the upcoming campaigns and as we act in Congress. And we're going to force our Republican colleagues now that this decision has sort of lifted up uh, their hypocrisy uh, to choose a side. Are you for the American people, working people, for more and better health care, yeah. or, or are you going to continue to cut it? I know Same with Trump. Same with uh, President uh, Trump. Uh, I know you're very.
10: I know you're very careful about putting your view here. Now that you're uh, <laughs> the leader of, your, uh, of the Senate conference, there, where are you going to support Medicare for all, Senator Schumer?
11: Look, as I said, there are lots of different routes. I'm going to support a plan that can pass and that can provide the
0: best, uh, cheapest health care for all Americans. So that, to me, was infuriating. Because if you care about winning, how do you not support Medicare for All explicitly? 70% of Americans support Medicare for All, including 52% of Republicans. How do you not just answer a simple question with a straightforward yes or no, Given how popular it is, it's because Chuck Schumer probably doesn't want to win because then he'd actually have to do something and that would be more difficult than just grandstanding and pretending to be tough and talking with his glasses down like this and doing the thumb point. Look, Chuck, you've got to get it together or step aside because as leader, you're clearly ineffectual and you're not doing anything. So let's get to the answers and why they're so awful. So Chuck Todd asks, do you think it's time for Democrats to push for Medicare for All, given what the head of the PCCC said about Medicare for All and how it needs to be a clear focus going into 2020? Chuck Schumer responds by saying, look, Democrats are for universal access to healthcare. We want more people covered, everyone covered. We want better healthcare at a lower cost. Now, when he says this, this means nothing. Universal access is something bullshitters say when they don't support Medicare for All but don't want to let you down or at least want to obfuscate about what their position actually is. And understand there, he actually fucked up his own talking points. He said, we want more people covered. And then he corrected himself, everyone covered. What What are you even talking about? You're saying a lot of words, but there's not any substance behind those words. There's just noise coming out of your mouth but it's not attached to any coherent policy. We want everyone covered, but you don't support Medicare for All. We want universal access, but access doesn't necessarily translate into actual healthcare, but yet we want everyone covered and we want it to be a better cost. Chuck, you're not saying anything. All you're doing is filibustering. You're talking long enough in hopes that Chuck Todd will move on to another question because your health industry donors probably don't want you to even acknowledge that it's a policy that exists that's overwhelmingly popular. He also said, I believe Democrats will coalesce around the best way uh, around the way to get the best health care for the most people. Right, we've already done that. If you haven't looked at the polls, as I just stated a couple minutes ago, 70% of the country supports Medicare for All, including 52% of Republicans. We've coalesced around the healthcare policy we want. It's Medicare for All. Why won't you endorse Medicare for All, Chuck? He is infuriating. Now, Chuck Todd asked him again, and what Chuck Todd was trying to do here was get him to essentially show his cards when it comes to Medicare for All. And here's what he said that made me so angry because it's so stupid. First... We'll have to undo this awful decision. Now, what he's talking about here is the judge that recently decided to strike down the Affordable Care Act. He's saying you have to first undo that decision before you can go forward. What? Why would you have to do that? Why would you have to tend to that problem? Because clearly it's the case that the Affordable Care Act has been dismantled. It's basically death by a thousand cuts, right? Because Trump, in passing his GOP tax scam, tax cuts for the rich, repealed the Affordable Care Act or portions of the Affordable Care Act, and they've been doing what they can to chip away at the ACA. So to try to clean up the mess and pick up the millions of pieces of the ACA when you could just go to a new solution that would actually be more popular and effective, Medicare for All, At this point, I don't think that Chuck Todd, or excuse me, Chuck Schumer, two different Chucks here, is that dense. I don't think he's that dim-witted. I think he's playing dumb because it's easier to look like a fool and play dumb and pretend as if you have to save the ACA before moving on to Medicare for All. Look. The ACA, what Republicans have done is they've watered it down to the point where millions of people are now losing health insurance every single year. Do you want to know how you can stop that from happening in the future, Chuck? You can just go for Medicare for All, where healthcare is free at the point of service and nobody has to worry about securing healthcare through for-profit health companies. Now, Chuck Todd gave him one last chance and just asked him explicitly, do you support Medicare for All? Do you? I want to know your opinion, you know, not what Democrats are saying and what talking points you've manufactured. Do you support Medicare for All? And this was Chuck's answer. I'm going to support a plan that can pass and that can provide the best, cheapest health care for all Americans. That doesn't mean anything. Any plan can theoretically pass if you fight for it enough, but I think, logically, you know, you can deduce this if you actually put two and two together, that the plan that has the easiest time passing or would have the easiest time passing is the one with the most public support. It's Medicare for all. And what he's saying here, oh, the cheapest healthcare, the best cheapest healthcare for Americans, that sounds like the ACA. I mean... He's just stuck on these talking points that the Democratic Party has been using now for a decade, and it's just so frustrating. We can see right through it. He's using all the code words that are red flags for progressives. So when you talk about access to healthcare, when you talk about affordable healthcare, these are code words for, I don't support Medicare for all. Now, at a time when the country desperately needs Medicare for All, at a time when we're already talking about healthcare, not even a decade later after you just did healthcare reform, well, it shows that you've been a failure in your incrementalist approach and now it's time for the drastic change that Americans know they need on healthcare. And that is Medicare for All. And if you don't support it, then that's too bad for you because we will continue to put pressure on you, Chuck. So on this issue, if you're not with us, Chuck, you're against us. And you've proven time and again that you're against us and you don't actually care what the American people want. So you can go on mainstream media and look us in the eye through your glasses and tell us that you're with us and you're fighting for universal care. But at the end of the day, Chuck, we know that you're full of shit and you are the worst possible person. To be in a leadership position in the Senate. The IPCC recently warned us that we have little more than 10 years to take substantial action if we want to avoid a climate catastrophe. Now, it's already going to be the case that we will have to deal with the consequences of climate change. In fact, we're already seeing it play out before our very eyes. But if we want to stop catastrophic levels of climate change, we need to act within 12 years. Now, because this matter is so urgent, individuals like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez decided to step up and be a leader on this issue, and she's been relentlessly promoting a Green New Deal, which aims to invest in renewable, clean technology such as wind, solar, and hydro. And it's a proposal that's ambitious. I believe she wants to actually move us to 100% renewable by 2030. And because it's so ambitious, other Democrats are poo her Green New Deal, including individuals like Frank Pallone. Now, it is ambitious, but the good news is that getting things that are generally more difficult to achieve done is easier when you have the backing of the American people behind you, and it turns out that according to one public opinion poll, Americans agree with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because, as the headline reads here, it seems like pretty much everyone is in favor of her Green New Deal proposal. Now, as Brian Kahn of Gizmodo reports, the Green New Deal is popping. New polling released on Friday by the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication shows that... 81% of respondents across the political spectrum support the progressive plan to combat climate change by rapidly weaning the U.S. off fossil fuels. The Green New Deal is a set of aspirational goals in line with the best available climate science. Among those goals are switching the U.S. electrical grid to 100% renewable energy by 2030, improving energy efficiency, and setting up policies for a green jobs guarantee while planning a transition for fossil fuel workers as they move into new economic sectors. If it sounds good to you, you're not alone. The new polling numbers, which are based on online polling of 966 registered voters, show that 81% of respondents support this idea either somewhat or strongly. That includes 92% of Democrats, 88% of Independents, and even 64% of Republicans. Now, I just want to take a moment to pause and really reflect on those numbers because they are remarkable. 64% of Republicans support Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. If 64% of Americans, generally speaking, supported it, that would be huge. But 64% of Republicans support it. Now, there are some caveats to this poll. It is the case that Polling for this is early because she's only been talking about it for a few months, so it could be the case that once Republicans and Fox News and propagandists start to attack it, support could go down a little bit. But at the same time, this does give Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and allies like Bernie Sanders the chance to really make the case, because we've only just begun. So, I don't necessarily expect the numbers to go down too much, but additionally, people who took this poll, apparently... They don't know that the Green New Deal is linked to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, given that Fox News and Republican Party propagandists have kind of propped her up as a left-wing boogeyman, maybe that will taint this policy in their eyes, but for the most part, the preliminary results look really, really good, and this graphic here makes it clear that this is another winning issue for progressives, because a strong majority of Republicans, even the most conservative among the Republican Party, support this proposal at 57%, and these results, again, they're just astonishing, but really it speaks to the innovative approach to policy progressives often take. It's a way to simultaneously tackle climate change, but also avoid perceived economic costs. Costs. so seeing this poll even though it's just one poll it could be an outlier we don't know but just seeing this poll for now honestly gives me some much needed hope because i kind of i just felt as if you know even with the ipcc report this is a lost cause even with the proposal of the green new deal this is a lost cause because there's just no political will to act in the united states but this Proved my cynicism wrong, and I'm very happy about that. Now, we can't mention the Green New Deal without crediting Dr. Jill Stein, because as much as Democratic Party loyalists like to shit on Jill Stein, she was the one who initially introduced the idea of a Green New Deal. And because of the Green Party, We're now talking about universal basic income, student loan debt cancellation, a Green New Deal. So, as much as you may disagree with people who vote for green parties, understand that they still serve a really important purpose within a two-party duopoly. They control the Overton window to a degree, and they kind of get people within the major two parties to acknowledge certain policy proposals that are important. So, also, we have to give credit to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because she's the one who kind of breathed new life into the Green New Deal. So, um, this is really just, it's remarkable. This is exactly how you win right here. I think that the Justice Democrats tweeted out to the Democrats, this is how you win. 64% of Republicans support a Green New Deal. Over 80% of the country overall supports a Green New Deal. This is an issue that you cannot lose on. So you've got to advocate passionately for it. And you can't back down because this is something that isn't only a winning strategy, politically speaking, but it's also a moral necessity. Because if we don't take action, then this planet will not be habitable for future generations. And if it is habitable, it's going to be a nightmare to live on this planet with water sh- shortages and wars over water. So, running in 2020, if you, if you plan to be president, this has got to be a centerpiece of your platform. Because I can't take you seriously if you don't take the threat of climate change seriously. Because now that we have the time to act, now that we still have a limited amount of time to act, I will never forgive myself if I don't do everything I possibly can to encourage lawmakers to take action. So, um, this is absolutely phenomenal news, and it's honestly a little bit shocking to me. So um, we're going to keep talking about the Green New Deal and credit where it's due. Uh, Jill Stein and also Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made us all realize the importance of a Green New Deal, and now it's just a matter of us putting pressure on our representatives and senators to sign on to a Green New Deal. Claire McCaskill is a pro-corporate conservative Democrat who, as you'll all recall, recently lost her election to Republican Josh Hawley after trying to outflank him from his right. She's always been conservative, but she recently took a hard shift to the right in order to appeal to voters in her state. She thought that that would help her win rather than actually trying to excite her own base. But she lost, unsurprisingly. And one thing that really struck me is that she even pandered to racists. She said, when it comes to the migrant caravan, what we should do is stop them at the border. She said this. So she literally decided to invoke xenophobia and racism as a way of pandering to right wing voters she thought she could win over. That strategy didn't work. She lost, and she's a loser. But now she's going to give Alexandria Ocasio Cortez some advice, someone who just won her election, and she's going to be relatively condescending and explaining. Look, you just can't be too liberal, AOC. You've got to be more conservative like me, even if I just lost.
12: Well, what's her name? Everybody's fascinated with oh. from New York, Cortez.
0: Yeah, I mean, God love
12: her, but I hope she listens to people who defeated Republicans, because it's the people who defeated Republicans in this election that we need to be emulating, not the people who defeated Democrats in primaries. And that goes back to the kind of pure than pure yeah. uh, base that yes. right. doesn't understand the broader picture. Well, they may understand it, but they are so passionate about their beliefs, they feel that if everybody would just be more pure, more people would come to the cause. And many of them have not been in a place where the math is unforgiving to that concept. And so I just want to make sure that we don't make a mistake and go so far to the left in nominating a candidate that we lose all those white working class voters that had been a huge part of our party decades ago. While we um, maintain great enthusiasm by young people, we need somebody who can bridge that divide. So we have an opportunity in 2020, as long as we don't go so far off the left side of the earth, that we alienate those people that... When they hear the word free college, they hear that phrase, they think, oh, look, they're giving away something to other people besides me again. I had to earn mine. Why aren't they having to earn theirs? That thing is real. Sometimes going too far, we turn off people um, and make election victories impossible. Um, I'll tell you a true story. I'm at a gas station in Kingdom City, which is A stop in the highway. And this is about a month after President Trump was inaugurated. And there was a good old boy over by the gas pumps. And he said, Hey, you, hey, you, which in Missouri is senator, senator. So I walked over and I said, What can I do for you, sir? And he started shaking his finger in my face. He said, I voted for you before and I may vote for you again. But I want you to know why I didn't vote for her, Hillary Clinton. I knew she cared about women. I knew she cared about Muslims. I knew she cared about Mexicans. I knew she cared about homosexuals. I really knew she, you know, really cared a lot about black people. But I was pretty sure she didn't give a shit about me.
0: What I find hilarious about everything she said there is that the strategy she's claiming we should use just failed Democrats. Running a centrist failed Hillary Clinton in 2016. It failed her and it also failed other Democrats. It failed Heidi Heitkamp. Joe Donnelly, who basically also went full Republican, and now she's saying, look, we can't listen to these people who defeat Democrats, we've got to listen to people who defeat Republicans because they're the ones with the winning strategy. And if the goal is to defeat Republicans, then we can't listen to these far-left loons like AOC who didn't really even have to take on a Republican. And she said specifically, they, meaning progressives, feel that if everybody would be more pure, more people would just come to the cause, and many of them have not been in a place where the math is unforgiving to that concept. Except Stacey Abrams just tried the opposite strategy. What she tried to do in a deep red state, that is Georgia, is galvanize her base, register new voters, get people out to vote. That's what you're supposed to do if you're a Democrat, not pander to the right. And Stacey Abrams probably would have won. In the event, Brian Kemp wasn't a gigantic scumbag and didn't steal the election. Now, additionally, to say that you have to not be so far to the left, well, I mean, if you if you think that, that's fine. But we've tried this strategy again, time after time, and it led to Democrats being wiped out, losing a thousand seats in legislatures across the country. And in 2018... More than half of Democratic Party House candidates running supported Medicare for All. They shifted to the left, and what happened? We had a massive blue wave. It didn't look like a blue wave at first. It looked like a blue trickle, but overall, we ended up taking back a ton of seats in the House. So what are you talking about, Claire? Your strategy is a proven failure. It didn't work for you, right? You just lost trying the strategy you're saying that other people need to try. So, I I mean, the audacity of her to say, no, I'm still right, even after the strategy that I just used lost me the election, uh, you know, do what I did. She also said here, I just want to make sure that we don't make a mistake and go so far to the left in nominating a candidate that we lose all those white working class voters. Now, essentially, she's saying, please, for the love of God, don't nominate Bernie Sanders in 2020. That's basically all that she's saying, and she's trying to do what other corporate Democrats do. She's trying to disaggregate the working class. Stop doing that. It's the working class, not the white working class, because policies, economic policies specifically that benefit working class voters benefit people of all colors. And she also said something that was uh, a little bit telling. Um, So she talked about what she believes people think when they hear the words free college. Oh, look, they're giving away something to other people besides me again. I had to earn mine. Why aren't they having to earn theirs? Now, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I don't think I am. This seems like racially coded language. This is racist apologia. She's essentially giving legitimacy to the individuals who say... Oh, well, look at the black people. I have to work, but they just get to go on welfare. Look at these welfare queens. It's very Reagan-esque. It's very Super Predator-esque. That is what it seems like she's saying here. Now, again, maybe I'm misinterpreting what she's saying here, but it seems as if this is the case. Furthermore, I'm assuming she's talking about older people when she says things like this, because the assumption is that these younger people, they don't even have to work. They just want everything for free. When I had to earn college... But the problem is that she's not acknowledging that they're not acknowledging that the economy changed. We're working twice as hard to get half as far so you didn't earn shit. Baby boomers who like to denounce millennials as lazy... They benefited from social democratic policies and education that was subsidized by the big government they now bemoan. Now, she also cited this example that she thought was profound of some voter who said, you know, Hillary Clinton, I thought that she cared for marginalized communities. I was sure of that, but she certainly didn't care about me, a white person. That's not profound, Claire. That voter is uninformed. It's on you to inform him. Now, he's correct that the Democratic Party doesn't care about him, but they don't care about any people in the working class because they've moved away from the working class. So, because that person is brainwashed by Fox News, who thinks it's black versus white, no, the Democratic Party abandoned everyone. They only talk about racial justice issues once every four years. We've only now seen a sustained effort to push for criminal justice reform and whatnot. Because liberals progressives like myself are continuously putting pressure on them but she's basically saying oh well see this is reason why we got to go back and start getting those white working class votes no we need to get the working class votes stop disaggregating classes so it's just this is beyond frustrating to me because She's out of touch. She's so out of touch. And she's trying to give Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez advice. You're the last person who should be giving anyone advice, Claire. And you especially kind of showed your true colors by revealing how racially insensitive you are at a minimum. I'm being charitable because I'd call what you said in this last election racist because you were trying to pander to Donald Trump's immigrant hating base by saying we need to stop these immigrants fleeing violence that we created at the border so you're a disgusting person claire stop saying that we need to try your model of strategy it didn't it didn't work it didn't work for hillary it didn't work for you it didn't work for joe donnelly it didn't work for heidi heitkamp you lost and there's a reason for that because you don't have the right strategy so um i don't think anyone's going to take you seriously claire because you've proven to be a failure and um you're just a joke to us nobody takes you seriously you want to run again run as a republican because that's truly who your allegiance is to conservative voters so go be with them and stop trying to give democrats advice Comcast is one of the multi-billion dollar companies that has spent millions of dollars lobbying to get the Title II net neutrality protections that we fought and won in 2015 repealed. And now, these internet service providers are facing a huge backlash because of their greed. Because... They want to charge consumers more, and consumers know that these companies are horrible, but the reason why they're still in business is because they have monopolies in a lot of cities and municipalities. So, if you don't like Comcast, you don't have a choice. I mean, for me, I've been a Comcast customer because I don't have a choice, and they just suddenly decided to impose these arbitrary data caps on my internet service. Now, as someone who my entire business is based online- I have to have more than a terabyte of data every single month. You know, I upload, I download, and like everyone else, I stream Netflix and whatnot, so it's just frustrating that we don't have a choice. You want me to give you the
8: number of a different cable company that can- Oh, wait, we're it, aren't we?
0: But one small town had the opportunity to give Comcast a big fuck you, and that's exactly what they did, and they did it because they opted for an option that Comcast is- terrified of. Public Broadband. And as John Brodkin of Ars Technical reports, a small Massachusetts town has rejected an offer from Comcast and instead plans to build a municipal fiber broadband network. Comcast offered to bring cable internet up to ninety-six percent of households in Charlemont in exchange for the town paying four hundred sixty-two thousand one hundred twenty-three dollars plus interest toward infrastructure costs over fifteen years, but Charlemont residents rejected the Comcast offer offer in a vote at a special town meeting Thursday. The Comcast proposal would have saved the town about $1,000,000 But it would not be a town-owned broadband network, the Greenfield Recorder reported Friday. The defeated measure means that Charlemont will likely go forward with the 1.4 million municipal town network, as was approved by annual town meeting voters in 2015. About 160 residents voted, with 56% rejecting the Comcast offer, according to news reports. Charlemont has about 1,300 residents and covers about 26 square miles in northwest Massachusetts. officials estimate that building a municipal fiber network reaching 100% of homes would cost $1.4 million plus interest over 20 years. An increase in property taxes would cover the construction cost, but the town would also bring in revenue from selling broadband service and potentially break even, making the project less expensive than Comcast's offer. With 59% of households taking broadband service, the tax hike would be $0.29 per 1000 of a Home value, similar to that for Comcast. A recorder article last month said, but if 72 percent or more of households subscribe to the municipal-owned network, there is no tax impact because subscriber fees would pay for it. Currently, Comcast covers about 9.5 percent of Charlemont, while Verizon DSL is available in about 88 percent, according to estimates by Broadband Now. The town plans to charge $79 a month for standalone internet service with gigabit download and upload speeds and no data caps, though the price could rise to $99 a month if fewer than 40% of households buy the service. The town also plans to offer phone and TV service at rates cheaper than Comcast's. Now, what I love about this story is that this has got to scare the shit out of internet service providers like Comcast, like Verizon, because public broadband has essentially become a huge threat, but it's because of their decision to lobby for the repeal of net neutrality. Nobody would be talking about public broadband had they not repealed net neutrality, but this is what you wanted and you inadvertently catalyzed this discussion and this movement really for public broadband. And these citizens in Charlemont know that if they opt for public broadband rather than Comcast... They control it so they don't have to worry about arbitrary price hikes, uh, the imposition of data caps randomly at Comcast's whim, and they actually do have recourse if they don't like the way that their service is being ran because they control it, it's theirs. So I absolutely love this, and you have to understand that this is something that's entirely possible in your city as well, and it may be more likely than you think, because I actually had a conversation at a town hall with my representative, um, and there were some city council members along with the county commissioner in my town that showed up, and I brought this issue to their attention. I talked about public broadband, and they were 100% down for it and they actually gave me resources in terms of who to contact in my area to get the ball rolling on this. So, it's a lot easier than you think and now it's just a matter of me following up with them to get the ball rolling and I'm pleasantly surprised that people around the country are kind of taking the initiative and going forward with public broadband. You know, I um uh, I brought Ron Placone on the show to talk about public broadband and he's someone who's trying to get public broadband in his area and after that a lot of people reached out saying you really inspired me to go and talk to my local city council about public broadband and there are varying degrees of success i mean you may not have an easy time getting public public broadband but the thing is that you won't know unless you try so for this town to adopt public broadband when comcast tried to come in and plant their flag in that town To get them to reject Comcast, that's just really something that's brilliant. Because in this town, Comcast had what I think it was uh, 8.8% of a subscription rate. So, the town did exactly what they should have done. Because now, when the rest of the country has to deal with buying internet as packages years down the line, if we don't save net neutrality, you know, and selling us the internet broken up, They don't have to deal with that. They just pay one fee for the totality of the internet because it's their internet. They own it. So I just had to share this story because I'm always inclined to share stories of anti-consumer greedy companies getting the middle finger because it just, it puts a smile on my face because this is what they deserve. And companies like Comcast and Verizon, they absolutely deserve to go out of business. And the only reason why they haven't gone out of business is because they basically have a chokehold on the market if you don't like comcast or verizon odds are they're the only internet service provider in your area or the only one that will offer you higher speed internet in your area so you don't have a choice but when given the choice citizens reject these greedy companies because we know that they're only in it to make not just a profit off of us but exploit us as much as possible so i absolutely love this and i applaud this town For being bold and setting an example that the rest of the country will hopefully follow.
4: We're saying Merry Christmas again.
0: One of my favorite things about the holiday season is all of the different types of cookies we get to eat, because my mom usually makes these really bomb peanut butter balls, and I also love sugar cookies. In fact, I went out of my way to make my own sugar cookies, and no, this isn't prepackaged dough. I did it myself, and I decorated it, and even if it's a little bit burnt, and it looks like a four-year-old did it, I still made my own holiday treats, which I'm very proud of. Now, notice how I went out of my way to avoid saying Christmas tree and I said holiday tree because the point is that I like cookies. Now, another individual who also loves cookies is a man named Fucker Carlson. I mean, Tucker Carlson. Now, Tucker Carlson is a newscaster who wants you to think he's serious because oftentimes he'll stare directly into your soul for minutes at a time. And while his expressions may range from confused to amused... The overall takeaway is always that he's a very serious news journalist, and you should definitely take him seriously. So let's go ahead and watch him be outraged by gingerbread cookies, literally. Well, the war on Christmas
8: is not real. They tell you it all the time. It's totally fake, and if you believe in it, you're dumb. You watch Fox News or something, but it's also, of course, uh, going on. <laughs> and it's being fought very fiercely here in America, but not just in America. The war on Christmas is a global struggle. In the Parliament of Scotland, they have a national parliament, the coffee shop has stopped selling gingerbread men. Why? Gender specific. They're now called gingerbread people. You don't want to give them a gender without their consent. You don't even want to know how many bathrooms there are in gingerbread houses now. A lot. Tammy Bruce is a radio host and president of Independent Women's Voice, and she joins us. Tonight. Tammy, so I have this... I have a stinking suspicion that a lot of the people who are doing things like this are actually right-wing plants (laughs) there to discredit the progressives they live among do you think that's possible
13: Uh, i don't i I think though that they're it's (laughs) uh, i i know it's very it's very funny and now i've been starting to think about the complicated structure of gingerbread houses because of your comment i'm just wondering how many bathrooms can they get into one house um but look uh, here is the problem and it just proves of course our point in general uh, the left has worked now for a couple of generations to condition us to ahead of time worry about what we're gonna say uh, even your last segment of course is about that a little bit of of challenging people and threatening them and making sure that they know that there's danger in those thoughts uh, and so this Baker uh, it, it, she said it was a whim that she just thought you just like for no good reason that she should uh, not call them gingerbread men and call them them a gingerbread person and I couldn't tell obviously because they're also not wearing clothes so it's hard to say what it is that they're they they are and what they're doing and what they're not doing but she said she was also shocked by the response and that's the good news Tucker is that this is in in uh against Scotland the United Kingdom and the backlash she was apparently shocked that people were really upset about this and I contend After a series of, you know, living your entire life being kind of bullied into what you can and cannot say and presumptions that you're bad people, that it can be the smallest thing that tips you over the edge. That's it. That's the tipping point. And in this case, it's, you know, calling gingerbread men a gingerbread person when obviously they're men.
8: Well, so maybe the lesson is that the rest of us shouldn't participate in our own spiritual neutering and that, that we correct. should at every step along the way say I'm not I'm not complying with that. That's right. Call HR on me, I'm not doing it.
0: <coughs> this shit is dry. Yeah, so <coughs> that shit was dumb. So presumably because Tucker Carlson Ran out of examples and anecdotes of the war on Christmas that he could find in the United States. He decided to go elsewhere and look for an example where he found that someone is waging a war on Christmas. And it's this one baker who decided to quote, on a whim, call her cookies gingerbread people instead of gingerbread men. <laughs> Now, she was then met with outrage and was, quote, shocked that people were upset about this. Now, what's interesting to me is that as they talk about people being outraged over these gender-neutral cookies, the problem is that the framing suggests that it's actually left-wingers who are the ones who are outraged by everything and too politically correct, but here we see an example of right-wingers, albeit in a different country, but right-wingers nonetheless, I'm assuming, being outraged by something they clearly shouldn't be outraged by. But nonetheless, I got to congratulate Tucker Carlson here. You found the war on Christmas. This is the definitive example of a war on Christmas, if I've ever seen one. Now, fucker, I mean, Tucker also added, maybe the lesson is that the rest of us shouldn't participate in our own spiritual neutering. Yeah, I don't really know what that means. Does anyone know what that means? Spiritual neutering? How is one baker at one bakery on the other side of the world neutering you spiritually. That honestly doesn't make sense, and I don't know what he's talking about, but really, um, the real lesson here, contrary to what Tucker wants you to think is the real lesson, is that serious people don't care about cookies, for one, and we especially don't care about gingerbread cookies because they're fucking disgusting but second of all if you decide to use your platform to discuss how outraged you are over gingerbread cookies you are adding to the chorus of outrage you often denounce fucker i mean tucker but i do actually want to move on to a more serious topic and discuss what amounts to essentially kind of a ban on people saying merry christmas Now, if you haven't heard of that, well, you're probably not alone, but the idea is that we're not allowed to say Merry Christmas anymore, and things have just gotten out of hand in terms of political correctness. Now, Dennis Prager of PragerU, which is not a real university, by the way, decided to rerun a video that he released in 2016 as an ad in 2018, and talk about why we're no longer allowed to say Merry Christmas.
6: The change from wishing fellow Americans Merry Christmas to wishing them Happy Holidays is a very significant development. Proponents of Happy Holidays argue it's no big deal. Proponents of Merry Christmas are making a mountain out of a molehill. But the Happy Holidays advocates want it both ways. They dismiss opponents as hysterical, but at the same time, in addition to replacing Merry Christmas with Happy Holidays, they have relentlessly pushed to replace Christmas Vacation with Winter Vacation and Christmas Party with Holiday Party. So then, which is it? Is all this elimination of the word Christmas important or not? The answer is obvious – it's very important. That's why so much effort is devoted to substituting other words for Christmas. And these efforts have been extraordinarily successful. In place of the universal Merry Christmas of my youth, in recent decades I have been wished Happy Holidays by every waiter and waitress in every restaurant I have dined, by everyone who welcomes me at any business, by my flight attendants and pilots, and by just about everyone else. When I respond, thank you, Merry Christmas, I often sense that I've actually created some tension. Many of those I wish Merry Christmas are probably relieved to hear someone who feels free to utter the C word, but all the sensitivity training they've had
0: to undergo creates cognitive dissonance. Now, as someone who actually has worked in the service industry, my experience is completely different than what Dennis Prager is describing because I was never told by my boss to say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. I said happy holidays on my own accord because happy holidays is technically more correct since we're celebrating multiple holidays, Christmas, New Year's. But I can tell you from firsthand experience that I actually encountered more difficult people when I said happy holidays as opposed to Merry Christmas. Do you understand what I'm saying? There was more outrage when I said happy holidays as opposed to Merry Christmas. In fact, I distinctly remember one customer kind of leaning in and telling me, look, you don't have to say happy holidays. I'm not down for that politically correct bullshit. Merry Christmas to you, man. And I remember thinking, wow, he actually thinks that he's telling me something profound. This idiot must be a Fox News viewer. (laughs) But the point is that if you say Merry Christmas in America, well, you're going to get in trouble, according to Dennis Prager. But the problem is that by saying that you can't say Merry Christmas... These Republicans and conservatives are kind of fucking up their own narrative because once Donald Trump was elected, well, apparently he saved Christmas, but now all of a sudden, since they're rerunning this ad again in 2018, we're not allowed to say Merry Christmas again. So which is it? Because Republicans ran this ad just last year. Thank you,
5: President Trump. Thank you, President.
0: Okay, so this is getting really confusing. At first, I thought we weren't supposed to say Merry Christmas, but since Trump was elected, now we can say Merry Christmas again finally and not have to worry about going to jail for saying Merry Christmas. But all of a sudden now, there is still a war on Christmas, but Trump saved us from the war on Christmas. I'm confused. It, it, it just doesn't make any sense. But I think I'm confused because I'm too much of a lib cuck. And I just can't understand what these conservatives are saying because they have facts and reason and logic And all I have is, well, none of that. So I think that if I truly want to embrace Christmas, then I do need to join the chorus of people who are fighting the war against Christmas. Because I personally, I've said it before, I love Christmas. I've got the tree here specifically for this segment. But if I truly want to embrace Christmas, then I feel as if I have to do what these conservatives are doing. And I also... Need to fight against the war on christmas and i've got to cherry pick my own anecdote to demonstrate just how much of a war is being waged on christmas so just give me a second i'm gonna go ahead and search the web here for an example of a war on christmas oh i already found one the trump administration is canceling annual white house christmas party for press holy shit! this is serious now you're telling me the man who supposedly saved christmas is now joining liberals to wage a war on Christmas? There really is a war on Christmas. If Trump is doing it, then as a liberal, since everything Trump does is bad, there must be a war on Christmas. I've got to tell Tucker about this. Tucker, look, I found an example of the war on Christmas that you are not going to believe. The individual who is ruining Christmas is Donald Trump. He's a mole. He said that he was in favor of Christmas. Tucker? Tucker? Tucker, do you hear me? Tucker! It seems like he's stuck, like he can't move or something, like he's unable to break out of the Tucker stare. It seems like the news that Donald Trump is also joining the war on Christmas caused some type of cognitive, what's the word I'm looking for again?
6: Cognitive dissonance.
0: Ah, cognitive dissonance. Thank you, Dennis. So look, I think that the only way we're able to describe just how robust the war on Christmas is and how bad it's gotten now that Donald Trump is also waging a war on Christmas is if I bring in someone else because I can't do this alone. So I'm going to introduce you to Humanist Report correspondent on the war on Christmas, Hot Dad. Hot Dad, can you please fill us in and tell us how bad it's gotten?
5: Waking up on Christmas morning and something's changed. Gunfire bombs dropping earth, shaking our country's ablaze. It has taken away the rain here in the slide Has been replaced by a Prius, I just don't think it's okay So much less room for presents, the car is smaller than the slide There'll be a dirt of joy, we've got to do something now the walk on Christmas, recruiting soldiers for the wall On Christmas, the ringing jingle bells a holy mission Throw mistletoe strikes in the wall On Christmas, 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 Christmas Saw the new Starbucks cup, it's so grotesque and profane Because of that, Christmas is probably cancelled Unless we shout across the land Christmas is what we demand My friend's mom said Merry Christmas And they took her away We're all so terrified security detention facility for the same reason
0: Is now, officially, my favorite time of year because this is our fourth annual Humanist Report Awards, where I will nominate four things in each category, and then the viewers are going to vote on. These different categories, there's going to be the what the F moment of 2018, the badass moment of 2018, we'll crown our scumbag of 2018, and then we'll end the show by crowning our MVP of 2018. And I don't know why I enjoy doing this so much, but I really enjoy it. So let's get to the first category. This is the WTF moment of 2018. And let me tell you, this was really difficult for me to just narrow it down to four categories because I think that this entire year politically at least, can be described as what the fuck. Because Donald Trump is still president, we don't have net neutrality anymore, and there's a lot that went on, but I did narrow it down to four categories, and here's my first nomination. Brett Kavanaugh's testimony, which was absolutely just insane to watch. Because usually it's the case that if you want to be on the Supreme Court, you're going to try to do your best to not look like an insane, politically motivated conspiracy theorist. But that's not what Brett Kavanaugh did. And this is something that I don't think we can describe as anything but WTF. And it's why Brett Kavanaugh's moment here, his testimony specifically, is WTF to me. It embodies WTF. This
7: whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. This is a circus.
0: Now, the second nominee is Brian Kemp's election theft. I don't really have to say too much about this, but if you look at the gubernatorial race in Georgia between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp, he stole an election from Stacey Abrams. As Secretary of State, he used his power to suppress the vote, to put voter registrations on hold, and it was close. It was a really close vote. She almost won in spite of his attempt, his successful attempt, really, to rig the election. And since it was so close, he stole the election. I don't think that that's even disputable at this point. So, stealing an election in what's supposed to be a democracy is pretty WTF to me. So, that's why it made it on my list. The third nominee in this category is Donald Trump's response to Jamal Khashoggi, because as you all know, Jamal Khashoggi was a journalist for the Washington Post that was murdered at the Saudi consulate in Turkey. Now, the response following was incredibly bizarre, because rather than choosing to penalize Saudi Arabia for murdering a journalist, Donald Trump chose to not just do nothing, but he actually rationalized it, saying, well, we have defense deals with Saudi Arabia, so why would we put those in jeopardy when Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed Martin could be making tons of money. Why would a journalist be important enough to where those deals fall through?
4: I would not be in favor of stopping a country from spending $110 billion, which is an all time record, and letting Russia have that money and letting China have that money because all they're gonna do is say, that's okay. We don't have to buy it from Boeing. We don't have to buy it from Lockheed. We don't have to buy it from Raytheon and all these great companies. We'll buy it from Russia. We'll buy it from China. So what good does that do us?
0: Yeah, so that speaks for itself as to why it made it onto the list. But my final nomination of 2018 for the biggest WTF moment is Donald Trump's family separation policy because it really... I think it was a new low for the United States in terms of cruelty because we claim to care about human rights, but yet Donald Trump thought that locking children in cages, literally separating families at the border and putting children in cages was a way that he could deter other immigrants from coming into the United States. Now, deterrence isn't something that necessarily works because these people are fleeing violence. They're fleeing violence and they don't really feel as if they have a choice. Either stay in your home country or be killed or leave to the United States and um, possibly be locked in a cage but at least you'll be alive. So that is just it, it's fascism. It's textbook fascism right there. So that is exactly why I had to put it as one of the nominees. So let's get to the results here. With a total of 2.8 thousand votes on YouTube coming in in fourth place with 17% of the vote is Brian Kemp's election theft in Georgia with 21% of the vote. Kavanaugh's testimony in response to Ford's allegations came in third with 25% of the vote. Trump's response to Saudi Arabia's murder of Khashoggi came in second and in first place on YouTube with 37% of the vote. Donald Trump's family separation is our YouTube viewers choice for WTF moment of the year. Now moving on to our Patreon patrons with 44 total votes. Kavanaugh's testimony came in first place with Trump's family separation policy coming in second place. And then in third, with 10 votes, we have Trump's response to Khashoggi. And in fourth place, we have. Brian Kemp's election theft with eight votes. And when we go to Twitter, our Twitter viewers sided with our Patreon patrons because to them, with 33% of the vote, Kavanaugh's testimony is the biggest WTF moment with Trump's family separation policy coming in a close second. And with 20% of the vote, Trump's response to Khashoggi, as well as Brian Kemp's election theft, came in third place so with that being said it was relatively close because we have different portions of the audience disagreeing but since there's more votes well we have to base it on the youtube count because overall it's clear you guys thought that donald trump's family separation policy is the biggest what the fuck moment of 2018 and I agree with that. I can see why you guys chose that. All of these were WTF moments to me. And it seems like the individuals who were voting on this poll tend to agree with that and had a hard time choosing because as Eleza Siebert states, they were all huge WTF moments. And Planet Love says, 2018 is the year of all of the above. Couldn't agree more. Michelle Earthstrike says, an actual fascist was elected in Brazil. And yeah, actually, Jair Bolsonaro was one of the preliminary nominees for me, because that was also a huge what-the-fuck moment. But the reason why he got asked at the last moment was because traditionally these lists have always been American-centric, but because of Jair Bolsonaro, I thought that it would be fit to maybe create like an international category next year, because if I was really going to include international nominees here, then... I'd have a lot more choices, and this list would be a lot more difficult, so I totally see where you're coming from, and yeah, this was this was one of those all-of-the-above years, so that's your choice for what-the-fuck moment of 2018, Donald Trump's family separation policy. So overall, I think that most of us who are progressive would agree that 2018 was politically draining. However, there were a few bright spots. So we are now going to crown our badass moment of 2018. And I have four nominees. The first is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's surprise victory, which kind of caught us all off guard. We were all feeling a little bit demoralized because there were some really big defeats when it comes to Amy Valela, Paula Jean Swearingen, but here comes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who slayed the beast that is Joe Crowley, someone poised to be Speaker of the House one day. And that, to me, is my number one choice. But I don't get to choose. I get to nominate four choices, and you guys get to vote. But to me, this is the bright spot of the year. Now, another nomination uh, is going to be where a Seattle citizen berated city council after they passed a tax on large multinational corporations in order to alleviate homelessness in the city of Seattle, a heavily gentrified city. They passed this tax because they wanted to take action and stop homelessness because they have one of the highest homelessness rates in the country. So this tax was absolutely necessary. They passed it. And then weeks later, after putting pressure on the city council, well, the city council caved. And one citizen showed up to city council after this happened and said exactly what was on all of our minds. What's up,
1: bootlickers? I
0: haven't seen y'all since
1: the camp out. I got something to say, right? am tired of this fucking shit. I'm a father, I'm a veteran, and I'm an anarchist. Those are three people you don't want to piss off, all right? I'm tired of children getting attacked in the streets. I'm tired of them sleeping in the fucking streets. I'm tired sure, of seeing the very people here, sure. that I swore to defend get attacked by the state. So like I said out there, y'all need to close your fucking beaks and start moving your feet and get shit done. Take resources and put them in the hands of the people who need them. Alright? Seriously. The fuck is wrong with y'all? Who the fuck are y'all to justify letting people die in the streets with your policies and your laws and your legislation? How do you justify that? Killing people? I swear to give my life to defend the people from all forms of oppression.
0: Eventually, this shit's going to stop because it's our turn. We won't make excuses for the terror. Marks. So I think that clip speaks for itself, and it's why I had to put it on the list. Now, another nominee is how Bernie Sanders beat Jeff Bezos, because it really showed Bernie Sanders has a lot of political capital because he was trying to put pressure on Amazon to give workers a, rage of a raise of a, to a wage of $15 per hour with the stop. Bezos Act, the Stop Bad Employers from Zeroing Out Subsidies Act, and guess what happened? Within weeks, Amazon caved and decided to raise workers' wages to $15 per hour. Now, they may have found a roundabout way to fuck over their workers by limiting stock options and whatnot, but still, I mean, this was a raise that affected 300, more than 300,000 employees of Amazon and Whole Foods and it really was a showing of strength for Bernie Sanders. He also got Disney to cave. And it was just so badass to see Bernie Sanders do this without even passing the legislation. So it's why I think I had to nominate it as one of the badass moments of 2018. And finally, my last nominee would be Michelle Wolf's White House correspondence Dinner Roast of the entire political establishment.
3: We are graced with Sarah's presence tonight. I have to say I'm a little starstruck. I love you as Aunt Lydia in The Handmaid's Tale. Mike Pence, if you haven't seen it, you would love it.
0: Now, I kind of was iffy about including this on the list because, I mean, it's just a stand-up special. Comedians are inherently always trying to be edgy, but the reason why I had to include this was because she actually got changed. She offended the establishment so much that we're no longer going to have a comedian at the next White House Correspondents' Dinner. So, I think that that's pretty badass, right? And her stand-up routine was just on point. I mean, she took shots at the media, at Donald Trump, she criticized Democrats, and it really was fantastic. And even though her Netflix show kind of went down the drain, it was canned pretty early, I think that this moment right here was pretty badass. So, with that being said, You know who my four nominees are. Let's go ahead and get to the vote totals. So on Twitter, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's surprise victory at 47% is your badass moment of 2018. And coming in second is Bernie Sanders beating Jeff Bezos, Michelle Wolf with 9%, and At 5%, the Seattle citizen that berated city council. Now, when it comes to our Patreon viewers, with 51 total votes, they again sided with our Twitter audience and chose Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's surprise victory, coming in second with 21 votes. Bernie Sanders beating Bezos with four votes. Michelle Wolf, and in last place with zero votes is the Seattle citizen who berated city council. Now again, like with our "what the fuck" moment, the YouTube audience disagrees with the Patreon and Twitter audience, which is which is really interesting to me because usually you guys are all in lockstep. But nonetheless, um the YouTube audience with three thousand votes total chose Bernie Sanders beating Jeff Bezos as their badass moment of 2018 with 51% of the vote and coming in second with 38% is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory with 7% Michelle Wolf's roast and with 4% the Seattle citizen who berated City Council. Now, this was close. I actually agree with the Twitter and Patreon audiences more because even if that Bernie beating Bezos moment was pretty badass, I think that's still the... The hope and optimism that AOC's victory brought to all of our lives was really the biggest badass moment for me, but because YouTube had the most votes, uh, it's clear, Bernie Sanders beating Jeff Bezos is your badass moment of 2018, and you know what, that's not a bad choice. I'm not mad that my choice lost, I still think you guys chose well, and aoc came in a close second so i'm not even that mad so um yeah this is this is a pretty good choice so congratulations to bernie sanders taking the top of the list again in a humanist report award Show. surprise surprise right Well, it is now time for us to crown our scumbag of the year, and even though this isn't the most prestigious award that we give out here at The Humanist Report, it's usually the most popular, because you guys really like voicing your opinion about who you hate, and you know what? I don't blame you. (laughs) So I came up with four nominees, it was actually very difficult to narrow it down, but, um, yeah, I've got it to four, and I think this is a, pr- a pretty solid list. My first nominee, of course, is President Donald Trump. I really don't think that this one needs any explanation here. He's continuously fucking over Americans. He introduced his family separation policy this year. He's deregulating the industries. I mean, his deregulation literally facilitated an E. coli outbreak this year because farms were using dirty water for romaine lettuce. So, I mean, It really doesn't need to be said why he's on this list. Donald Trump has got to be on the list of the biggest scumbags of 2018. In fact, I think that if we had an international list of scumbags, he'd make that list too. Now, my second nominee is Brett Kavanaugh, because not only is he not an acceptable choice to be on the Supreme Court, but there's evidence that he perjured himself and lied. He's against net neutrality. He's a shill for corporate America. And I really don't think that it's surprising that he made this list, but my third nominee is Brian Kemp. Simply put, he stole an election in Georgia. Not only does that make him... Someone who qualifies to be on the the what-the-fuck moments of 2018, but it's certainly enough to make him a scumbag of 2018. And last but not least is Paul Ryan. Now, Paul Ryan actually became a nominee at the last moment when he decided to unilaterally block a vote on the war in Yemen. The House was poised to vote on cutting off support to Saudi Arabia as they wage a literal genocide in Yemen, and he decided to block it which means thousands of people will die as a result. So if that doesn't get you on the scumbag list, then I don't know what does. So let's get to the results here. With 1.4 thousand votes, our Twitter users have crowned Donald J. Trump, the scumbag of 2018, with 45% of the votes. Coming in second is Paul Ryan with 31%. And with 16%, Brett Kavanaugh comes in third. And at 8%, Brian Kemp is the least biggest scumbag, but still a scumbag nonetheless. And on Patreon, with 52 total votes, Donald Trump also came in first place with 23 total votes. Paul Ryan also came in second here with 13 votes. With 11 votes, Brett Kavanaugh's third. And with five votes, Brian Kemp is fourth. And when it comes to our YouTube audience, with 4.7 thousand votes, well, it's clear, you guys definitely think Donald Trump is The scumbag of 2016 with 61% of the vote and Paul Ryan with 21% comes in second again and with 13% Brett Kavanaugh comes in third and with 5% Brian Kemp comes in fourth. So this is an instance where our Twitter, Patreon, and YouTube viewers all agree and the results are mirrored completely in all three categories. Donald Trump by far and away is the biggest scumbag of 2018 according to humanist report viewers and i actually agree with them we're in lockstep here we all agree that this scumbag is the scummiest scumbag of 2018 and going to the comments mama bear says this could have used an all of the above option and i totally agree yarrow martis says my dudes brian kemp fucking stole a goddamn election Mike Sarvis says, I'm finding it impossible to make a decision here. While Paul Ryan's ideology is sociopathic, the term scumbag was made for guys like Trump and Kavanaugh. The political witch says, dang it, Mike, I can't choose. I feel you. And one with the water says, each one is as vile as the next. How to choose. So yeah, I feel you. It seems like the viewers had a difficult time choosing, but by far and away, Trump won, won this title, but nonetheless, he came out on top of this list, Um, and even though it was difficult, because these are all pretty big scumbags, uh, Donald Trump is the scumbag again for 2018. If you'll recall last year, Ajit Pai won by a gigantic, I mean, just a landslide victory. He was the scumbag of 2017, but the reason why he didn't make that list is because I tried to make it centered around the year and events that happened in that year, so Ajit Pai didn't really do anything New this year, even though he still repealed net neutrality and is still fighting to keep it that way, I really did plan on putting him on this list. But at the same time, it wouldn't seem appropriate given that he did his worst scummiest thing in 2017. Um, because there were some comments of people saying, "Where the fuck is Pie? and I, and I feel you. He's basically just an honorary scumbag every single year. But I mean, for the most part, you guys made your voices heard. It's Donald Trump by far and away. So congratulations, I guess, Trump. You are our scumbag of 2018. Well, it is now time for our most prestigious award. We hand out this award every single year at the Humanist Report. And let's just go through, you know, the history of the THR awards and see who was able to win the coveted MVP award each year. So in 2015, the very first year when we launched the podcast, the winner was Bernie Sanders. In 2016, our second annual Humanist Report Awards, the winner was Bernie Sanders. In 2017, the third annual <laughs> Humanist Report Awards, can you guess? It was Bernie Sanders. Now, of course, Bernie Sanders made the list of nominees It wasn't even a question. It was a no-brainer. And really, there were two nominees I selected, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That was really the no-brainers. The other two that I struggled with were who would be third and fourth on my list of nominees. And I went with Christine Blasey Ford as number three because... I don't think what she did and the power that that had can be understated because think about this. She had nothing to gain and everything to lose by coming forward and allowing Americans to hear the truth about Brett Kavanaugh. And she's still paying the consequences of her action till this day because she can't come home. She's facing death threats. She'd ha- she's had to move multiple times. I really commend her. And I think that that was a pretty bold move. So that's why she's definitely a nominee. And the last nominee. For me is the sunrise movement protesters and this really came out of nowhere they got on my radar a couple of weeks ago when they protested in nancy pelosi's office and demanded action when it comes to climate change and alexandria ocasio-cortez joined them but they haven't stopped since then they've been going to the offices of lawmakers prominent lawmakers frank Pallone, i believe Steny hoyer nancy pelosi again And they are not backing off when it comes to the issue of climate change. And I find that so commendable and inspirational. But with that being said, my top two nominees, of course, are Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, as for who's my number one, I actually don't know. Between Bernie and AOC, I honestly can't really choose. I mean, on one hand, I want to choose Bernie because... Bernie Sanders is the one who inspired a politician like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the first place. But on another hand, it's people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that is breathing new life into the progressive movement and energizing us. So I don't know who to choose. And still, till this day, I don't know who the fuck to pick. But here's one thing that's really interesting about this category this year. For the first time in the history of the Humanist Report Awards, this is the first time that The hegemony of Bernie Sanders has been challenged because he's been number one by far and away. It's been a landslide victory pretty much every time. But for the very first time, he got a run for his money by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So let's get to the results here. On Twitter, with a total of 535 votes, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wins with 52% of the vote. And Bernie Sanders kind of coming in a distant second here with 37%. We have the Sunrise Movement in third place with 6% and Christine Blasey Ford in fourth place with 5%. Now, when you go to Patreon, the story's a little bit different. So, with 57 votes total, Bernie Sanders actually beat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez he came in first with 30 votes. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came in fourth with 24 votes. And Christina Blasey Ford came in third with two votes. And with one vote, the Sunrise Movement came in fourth. And now, where it matters the most, where we have the most votes, our YouTube audience decided that the MVP for 2018 will, in fact, again, be Senator Bernard Sanders with 53% of the votes he is your MVP again. AOC getting a pretty respectable 39% of the vote in second place. And then tying for third is Christine Blasey Ford and the Sunrise Movement. So these results are just fascinating to me. Um, for AOC to get that big of um, a vote share is is great. I, like, I'd like to see two progressives up there. And I know that some of you may feel a little bit hurt that someone like AOC, who's a newcomer, is taking so much of the vote share from Bernie. Not that we should take this award show that seriously, but the fact is that the more Bernie-type politicians we have, the better off we all are. Now, getting to the comments, Franz Ossi says, I would normally say Bernie, but Alexandria is the future and broke grounds with her upset against Joe Crowley and rapid upswing in popularity. Steady Mobbin says, It's always Bernie, man. (laughs) I feel ya. Politically Engaged says, Tough one. AOC plus Bernie. Joint MVP. I would love that, but I kind of feel like that's cheating. Uh, Mike Pence's Cowboy Bulge. Wow, I can't believe I just read that name out loud when my mom will be watching this. Says, In all honesty, Bernie can get a Lifetime Achievement Award and AOC has plenty of time to make bigger waves. However, Christine Blasey Ford risked everything with no plans to get anything in return. She's an American hero. Let's give her her roses now. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Amanda Ferholt says, it's so hard to choose i empathize with you 100 percent amanda i this is tough again i still don't know who i pick do i pick bernie or aoc so i mean i don't have to pick that's the good news i pick my four nominees and you guys pick for me but um it's tough but certainly for them to be at the top two it really is something that i do agree with but certainly we've got to pay tribute to the others Um, as well as the honorable mentions, I mean, Ro Khanna, there's, uh, Pramila Jayapal, Sarah Smith, there's a lot of individuals that are worthy of this award, but for the most part, you guys chose the MVP, and now for the fourth year in a row, Bernie Sanders is the MVP at the Humanist Report Award Show. Um, it says something, man, Bernie Sanders has some staying power, and progressives still really love Bernie, and, uh, I don't blame you. I love Bernie too. So there you have it. This has been the Humanist Support Award Show. We just handed out our most prestigious award. So congratulations to the winners. Not all of you are winners. I'd argue that the scumbag, scumbag category is a pretty bad category to win in. But nonetheless, you know, this has been fun and I, I truly enjoy this. Um, I would highly encourage you to comment down below if you'd like to see new categories introduced next year because this is coming back in 2019. Obviously, I love doing these award shows and it seems like you guys like it too. So, um... There you have it. MVP, Bernie Sanders. So as you all know, we are approaching the one-year anniversary of... President Donald Trump The younger generation now tells me how tough things are Give me a break Our government just let us know that Whether we like it or not, we're staying in Syria Indefinitely Two governors, one from Montana And one from the state of New York Decided to unilaterally enforce Net neutrality via executive order New Jersey becomes another state That is stepping up to enforce Net neutrality The governor of Hawaii became the fourth governor In the country to enforce net neutrality via executive order the survivors of the parkland florida shooting they decided to not allow their voices to be silenced. We are now in our brand new studio. President Donald Trump has decided to fire his national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, and he announced that he'll be replacing him with John Bolton, who served as UN ambassador under George W. Bush's administration. And now that the teachers in West Virginia were successful, we're starting to see teachers rebel across the country. There was another unarmed black man who was shot and killed this week. His name is Stefan Clark. Donald Trump decided to bomb the capital of Syria. Democrats file suit alleging Russia-Trump campaign WikiLeaks conspired to interfere in 2016 campaign.
1: You guys are shoveling money
0: at him. That was the second highest ranking Democrat admitting that they frequently stack the deck against progressives. I am announcing today that the United
4: States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal.
0: There were some reports that she actually joyfully tortured people. The China Haspel said, good job. I like the way you're drooling. The United States just opened up its embassy in Jerusalem. Israeli forces shot and killed 57 Palestinians. If you run a bakery, your job is to bake fucking cakes. And if you open your door to the public, you're implicitly acknowledging that you'll be serving all types of people. You don't get to pick and choose who you don't want to serve based on arbitrary characteristics or immutable characteristics. She's been putting herself in danger in order to treat wounded protests and a sniper from the Israeli army targeted her and killed her. Well, they didn't know Bernie Sanders. I had the absolute right to pardon myself. He met with Kim Jong-un and thankfully, he didn't do one of those stupidly aggressive handshakes that he usually does. I mean, it was kind of long and awkward, but nonetheless, things seem to go relatively well. Nearly 2,000 children have now been separated from their parents and they're being held in these makeshift detention centers, placed in literal cages and at some of these facilities. The conditions are prison-like. Stephen Miller, for example, was called a fascist while he was having dinner at a Mexican restaurant. Florida Attorney General and Trump surrogate Pam Bondi was confronted by protesters while attending a screening of a documentary about Mr. Rogers. Additionally, protesters gathered in front of Secretary of Homeland Security Kirsten Nelson's house but that was only after she was shamed while having dinner at a Mexican restaurant. US Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders was denied service at the Red Hen restaurant. Her goal here was to condemn Maxine Waters.
11: I strongly disagree with those who advocate harassing folks if they don't agree with you.
0: The internet is under attack right now. One Democrat, this individual, Miguel Santiago, might single-handedly kill that bill. California's net neutrality law has in fact been resurrected by state lawmakers. This
3: is a moral problem and your response has been to apply more paperwork to this situation.
0: We have a stunning upset with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defeating Corporate Democrat Joe Crowley. Single-payer universal health care, universal jobs. There was a Daily Caller journalist who crashed an Ocasio-Cortez rally.
13: We just wrote a $2 trillion check
3: for that tax cut, the GOP tax cut, and nobody asked those folks how are they going to pay for it. So my question is, why is it that our pockets are only empty when it comes to education
0: and health care for our kids? Amazon puts 7,000 jobs on hold because of a tax that would help Seattle's homeless Population. They just caved to pressure from Amazon and Starbucks. The fuck is wrong with y'all? The Supreme Court sided with Donald Trump on his Muslim ban. President Donald Trump named Brett Kavanaugh as the replacement to Justice Anthony Kennedy. Special counsel Robert Mueller issued the first set of indictments directly related to Russia's alleged hack of the dnc servers donald trump's former attorney michael cohen implicated him in a federal crime trump's top allies like paul manafort was found guilty on eight different counts some of his former close allies like david pecker of the national Enquirer, decided to flip on donald trump the cfo of the trump organization who knows all of donald trump's finances like The back of his hand has now flipped.
6: Problem with socialism, in the words of Margaret Thatcher, at a certain point you run out of spending other people's money. Venezuela!
0: Less than a week after learning about a new study that warned of a runaway global warming effect, Chairman Tom Perez announced a new rule in order to reverse the DNC's two-month ban on fossil fuel contributions. And guess what? the DNC adopted it. The DNC actually surprisingly voted to overhaul their brazenly undemocratic superdelegate system, and this is a huge step in the right direction. Senator John McCain from Arizona has passed. President Donald Trump told lawmakers on Thursday he wants to scrap a pay raise for civilian federal workers. A slim majority of Republicans now want single-payer too. He was killed in his own apartment. To tarnish my son's reputation in his death, I
9: will not sit back.
1: We will not cooperate with the ICC, we will provide no assistance to the ICC, and we certainly will not join the ICC.
0: We we way than you we are are the nationwide prison strike that started on August 21st. Not only did he dodge incredibly important questions that we need to hear him answer, whether or not the president has the power to pardon himself or whether or not he'd vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, chalking these questions up to hypotheticals. We recently learned that he might have possibly committed perjury or misled the Senate at a minimum on five different occasions. This
7: whole two week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside
0: left-wing opposition groups. Brett Kavanaugh, to no one's surprise, was confirmed to the Supreme Court.
4: On behalf of our nation, I want to apologize
0: Jeff Bezos just caved to activists and Bernie Sanders and raised Amazon's minimum wage Bernie Sanders beat Jeff Bezos here. California Governor Jerry Brown has officially signed their state's net neutrality bill into law. The Justice Department announced that they would be suing the state of California, challenging this. There is only a dozen years for global warming to be kept to a maximum of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Khashoggi flew to Istanbul and entered the Saudi consulate to obtain documents that would seal his marriage to his Turkish fiancé. They believe he has been killed. We cannot have an ally
3: who murders in cold blood in their own consulate.
0: There's been a lot of commotion when it comes to the caravan that is headed here from Honduras. There's this absurd idea that Middle Easterners and potentially members of ISIS infiltrated this caravan. I mean, last week, it was transgender Americans. When Trump's administration was essentially trying to define them out of existence, when the Justice Department said that businesses can fire individuals if they're trans. And then we have Trump claiming that immigrants in the caravan coming from Central America, you know, they're criminals, they're young, strong men. And then we have bombs being sent by a right wing terrorist. We have mass shootings occurring on what seems like a weekly basis, hate crimes being committed, police brutality against people of color, and then this last weekend, we have Jewish Americans being killed at a synagogue. I mean, this is demoralizing. So when our hate monger-in-chief headed to Pittsburgh to make a speech and pay respect to the victims of the synagogue attack... He was met by thousands of protesters. Brazil had a presidential election and it went horribly wrong. Brian Kemp put more than 50,000 voter registrations on hold. Voter ID laws, uh, voter roll purges. They specifically target people of color and no, that's not an unforeseen consequence, it's a feature. Their voices have been hindered by a lack of polling places needed to accommodate the demand for voters who actually want to make their voices heard. But knowing that having just one polling place might not necessarily stop these voters from voting altogether, what are Republicans doing now? They're just removing that polling place from the town altogether. I'm not calling Mr. DeSantis a racist. I'm simply saying the racists believe he's a racist. <laughs> but- <clears throat> Democrats have taken back. The House of Representatives. Are you worried? That's enough. That's no, enough. Mr. President, I, That's well, I enough.
3: ask one of the, the other folks. That's that. enough.
0: More than 200 youth activists, flanked by Representative elect Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, flooded House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi's office this morning. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez.
12: Alexandria
0: Ocasio Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Ocasio Cortez. Ocasio Cortez. In an attempt to criticize her for any and every little thing she said or does it's getting a little bit comical they're starting to actually look ridiculous she had these multi-thousand dollar outfits that could pay a month's rent in washington dc jane sanders was vindicated, as NBC5 reports. Amazing. This is what Donald Trump decided to tweet out the day before Thanksgiving. Quote, Whatever happened to global warming? The reason why he made this tweet at this very convenient time for him was in order to spread misinformation and obfuscate ahead of what would be a bombshell report that his own administration would be releasing the very next day about just how devastating climate change will be, not just to human life, But the US economy, a free Palestine. Mark Lamont Hill was fired from CNN because of that speech. Him passing doesn't change the fact that he was a war criminal. Bernie Sanders' resolution to end United States' support to Saudi Arabia as they carry out a literal genocide in Yemen has just advanced. Republican leadership in Congress moved to stall until next year, a broadly supported congressional resolution aimed at ending US support for Saudi Arabia's bombing campaign in Yemen. A Yemeni's child dying every 10 minutes. They tell us to wait till January.
4: That would mean thousands of more Yemeni's kids dead. I am proud to shut down the government for border security, Chuck.
0: So if you wanna defeat Trump, I suggest you back Bernie Sanders during the primary, because not only is he the best when it comes to policy, but strategically, he's the Democrats' best bet at defeating Trump in 2020. So, by the time the overwhelming majority of my viewers see this video, it will be On New Year's Day, January 1st, 2019, you'll probably be hungover and feel like shit and not want to even think about the work we're going to have to put in, but this is my message to all of you. One, I hope you enjoyed the holidays and I hope you have a quick recovery, Um, but two, rest up because we've got a lot of work ahead of us because this year could very well be a game-changer for the progressive movement, because within a matter of months, possibly weeks, Bernie Sanders will be announcing his run for the presidency again. And at that point, we need to absolutely fight 10 times harder than we did in 2016. And we have an advantage and a disadvantage simultaneously, because we have an advantage knowing that Bernie Sanders one has more name recognition and we kind of know what to anticipate what shenanigans and smears the establishment will use against bernie sanders but we also have a disadvantage knowing that the media knows we have these advantages and they're also going to work extra hard twice as hard to defeat bernie sanders so we've got to work 10 times harder and outwork the competition now there's a couple things that i want to say First of all, on the very first day that Bernie Sanders announces his run for the presidency, we need to do as much as we can to make noise. And when I say make noise, I mean we need to scream from the rooftops that Bernie Sanders is the best bet to not only take on Donald Trump in 2020, but save America. Save America from a capitalistic system That has essentially hollowed out our democracy that corrupted most politicians in america and what we do is we immediately get the word out we donate as much as we can to his campaign well i shouldn't say as much as we can donate the 27 dollars if you can but as much as you can meaning if you can't afford it you know a dollar or two will help because he's just he needs that money and that's how we immediately get a little bit of an advantage if we hit the ground running because the press will see oh there's still a lot of momentum for Bernie Sanders. Second of all, we need to make sure that we remain loyal to Bernie Sanders. Now, I'm not one for blind loyalty, but the reason why I'm saying this is because we need to be strategically competent. We need to consolidate our votes. So, if you see Elizabeth Warren announce or another progressive like Jeff Merkley announce, don't support them Right off the bat, I mean, we could acknowledge that they would be great going up against Trump. And while I would support someone like Elizabeth Warren enthusiastically in the event she were to win the nomination, we've got to consolidate our votes. That's why we need to support Bernie Sanders. He has the most support. And I think that it's most likely that he'd have the easiest time getting through a Democratic Party primary. And even though I support everyone making their own decision, understand if you if you want policies like Medicare for All and all the policies that Bernie Sanders talks about, consolidating the vote among progressives is our best bet at getting a progressive and hope that there's enough corporate Democrats to where they all split their votes. So while there may be 5% here for Kamala Harris, 10% here for Joe Biden, we need all progressives half of the Democratic Party, essentially, to line up behind Bernie Sanders so he gets a plurality and he makes it through the Democratic Party primary. Second of all, we need to understand that winning is possible. You may still be demoralized after what happened in 2016, and I wouldn't be surprised if the DNC or state Democratic parties did shenanigans, but understand this fact. Bernie Sanders has enough supporters and possible supporters to where he can not just win the Democratic Party primary, but the presidency. There are enough people in this country that would be willing to support Bernie Sanders. It's just a matter of us being successful enough to activate enough people. It's a numbers game. We need more people to support Bernie Sanders than everyone else. And we start doing the easiest thing possible, convincing family and friends to support Bernie Sanders, getting them to register for Bernie Sanders, to vote for Bernie Sanders or caucus for Bernie Sanders. Then we spread the word on social media. And then we put in time to phone bake and canvas for Bernie Sanders. It sounds like a chore, but it's very fulfilling. And I would highly, highly encourage you to do that. So just know that as you rest today on January 1st and recover, We have a lot of work ahead of us. We have our work cut out for us. And if we want to be successful this time around, we need to be more pragmatic. We need to be more strategic. And we need to beat the establishment at their own game. So if you're progressive, if you support Medicare for All, if you want a Green New Deal, if you want to end the wars, understand that there are going to be other individuals that support these policies Ask yourself why they support these policies. It's because Bernie Sanders has been a leader on these issues, and they have no choice if they want to be successful. So, it would serve us all extremely well if we consolidated support for one progressive candidate, and that person is Bernie Sanders. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to give you these words of encouragement, and also let you know that we... We've got a lot of work to do, and it's going to be exhausting. It's going to be demoralizing at times, and we're going to have some defeats here and there, but we may also have some wins here and there. And winning is entirely possible. It's just a matter of how hard we work. We've got to outwork the competition. So, in short, gear up, because this is going to be the fight for our lives. And I mean that both strategically And literally, because if we don't get someone who stops with this trend of neoliberalism and never-ending wars in both parties, I don't want to know what type of cartoonish villain the Republican Party will produce eight years down the line. Bernie is our best bet, and he's also a pretty phenomenal candidate. So when he announces We've got to hit the ground running. So I hope you guys all enjoyed your uh, holiday season, and I hope you are ready to fight because this is not going to be easy. Never underestimate any of your opponents, and even if polls start to show that Bernie Sanders is ahead, even if he starts racking up pledged delegates, treat it as if we're losing because we can never underestimate our opponents, and even if Bernie Sanders is successful, at the Democratic Party primary and takes on Donald Trump, don't underestimate Donald Trump because I think he's going to be more difficult this time than last time because an incumbent president, Donald Trump, will be more difficult to beat than candidate Donald Trump. And I say this knowing that You know, Mueller may produce his final report that kind of nails Donald Trump to the wall. But understand that Bernie Sanders is someone who the establishment will fearmonger about. So just know that there's going to be a lot of hurdles that we're going to have to overcome, but it's entirely possible. It's just, it's up to us and it's going to depend on how hard we work. So, um, get ready. Ladies and gentlemen, that is it. That is the end of the Humanist Report in 2018. I hope you guys enjoy the show. I know it was longer than usual, but that's kind of par for the course because we don't have an episode the week of Christmas and New Year, so, you know, we kind of just stack it with some fun segments, and I really look forward to all of the THR awards, so thank you to everyone who participated and voted and left comments and submitted, you know, your recommendations as to who I should nominate and who everyone should vote on. Thank you all so much, and as usual, we cannot close the show without sending a special thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors who hope the show not just survive, but thrive as well. And I have to send another thank you to everyone and that... Monitor just uh decided. Oh, okay, it's back. Well, you know, apparently it's just done because this episode has been too long. But what I was going to say was I can't close the show without thanking all of our GoFundMe backers who helped make this studio a possibility in 2018. I've got a lot planned for 2019, and I hope you guys all stay tuned and enjoy the program because it is uh it's gonna get interesting with a new presidential election on the horizon. So look, I'm tired of talking. So I will see you all next year (laughs) uh take care i'm mike rigoreto this is the humanist report